I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandal. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 82. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... This is Donovan. This is Joe. And this is Stella. And we are bringing you the latest comic news and comic book reviews from the past, not two weeks, not three weeks, but four weeks. Yes, that's right, four weeks. A lot of changes happening to the BatmanUniverse.net. You may have noticed that the site was offline for a short amount of time. Not to fret, that wasn't because the site is actually going offline, but it turns out that there are horrible people out there who like to hack sites, and our site got hacked, and was pretty badly infected with some sort of virus. So that's the reason why the site was down. Podcasts haven't been happening because if the site's down, there's no way of getting the podcasts out there, so that's why we're we're way behind. But we're going to catch up with 10, 10 comic book reviews this this month. We're going to chop the news section down to the bare bones of what happened throughout the four, last four weeks just because there's a lot of comic books to get through. And quite honestly, three hours for a podcast is a little ex- excessive every single time we put one of these out. So, John Wilson is also no longer going to be with us. He has moved on to bigger and greater things, as he says. So... We wish John the best of luck on his future endeavors, and he's always welcome to come back to TBU if and when his time permits. Alright, so, with that, let's get into comic news. It's Batman like you've never seen him before. Wow! Hey, Joker, a battery surprise! Miss me, Batman! That jet wings out fire! I never run out of tricks. You'll need them. Batman, the Dark Knight Collection, each sold separately. Like I said, there's not a lot of stuff that is actually worthwhile to even remotely go over because not a lot has actually happened in these past four weeks, despite the fact that you may believe it is, because a lot of the news has shifted over to movie with the release of The Dark Knight Rises coming next summer, and the viral marketing campaign for that has also kicked off, so a lot of the focus for Batman seems to be on that and not on a lot of the comic stuff. I'm just going to roll through some of the specific Highlights from the last four weeks. The first one is uh, November 28th. Tony Daniel talked with comic book resources about what's coming up in the upcoming storylines. He specifically talked about the Penguin storyline coming out in December, well, starting in December, and you can read more about that on the website. He also talked about Charlotte Rivers in that interview as well. A couple days later, Tony Daniel talked to Ain't It Cool News on December 5th and again talked about some of the different things regarding the future of his run on Detective Comics and also mentioned that the Joker's face being peeled off was on purpose and it will lead to a bigger story that's going to happen in the future. I, just, I feel like I would hope that it was on purpose. That's all I have to say and come into that. Well, we're going to talk about later in the issue where, where the face ends up, so... It seems there is there is a plan for Joker's skin. So then the another interview on December fifth, Jage Williams and 
W. Hayden Blackman were promoting the uh, New 52 at a comic book shop art tour, and they talked a lot about things having to do with Batwoman and Flamebird, but specifically, a lot of what was talked about is we'll end up talking about later on when we actually get to the Batwoman issue. Really nothing specific that is really newsworthy. They just talked a lot about Flamebird and said they, they were told that they weren't able to use Betty Kane's past history in Teen Titans in Batwoman. So um, that's really the only news that came out of that interview. If they weren't allowed to use it, then why was it mentioned? It's my question. And she forgot which issue, whether it was issue one or two, but she explicitly says, oh, come on, Kate, I was a teen titan, I fought Deathstroke. And that's interesting, if, if they weren't allowed to use it, does it mean it's out of continuity? Does it mean that they don't want to talk about it? What does it, exactly that mean? The next bit of news on December 8th, uh, unfortunate news, Jerry Robinson has passed away. Jerry Robinson, who had his hands in creating not only the Joker, Robin, Two-Face, number of characters within the Batman universe, but also is a humongous ambassador for comic artists all along his his life, ever since he's, he became a comic book artist. So besides that, our thoughts and prayers go out to his family for his passing, and he will definitely always be a creator that will be always remembered. Absolutely. You couldn't have the Batman franchise as it is today without Jay Robinson just like you couldn't have it with Bill Finger and obviously Bob Kane. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a, a case, as we all know, that Bob Kane created everything. Jay Robinson had a large hand in it. And those first Joker issues, which is the Joker as it is now, it was just, it left an indelible stamp on combo history. It's a passing of a great legend. He lived a very long life, so I'm glad to see that he saw the success of his characters on the big screen and throughout different media. So uh, no doubt about it, he will be missed. Yeah, I'm sure he'll always be remembered for everything he's contributed to, not only Batman, but all of comics. And like Dustin said, I hope his family are coping well. And what's nice about this medium is that, you know, even though he is gone, we'll always get to kind of revisit his work and everything, which is really great. So he'll never be forgotten, certainly. And then the really the last bit of news from the last four weeks was on December 8th, there was an interview that was done with Tony Daniel over at Newsarama and it dis- he discussed the future use of villains. Uh, we know that Penguin is going to be taking center stage in Detective Comics starting next month, and I think that's that's going to be a two-issue story arc. But he also mentioned in that same interview that Scarecrow is also going to be featured in one of his stories coming, and then he also hinted again at the Joker stuff. And I'm gonna I'm gonna specifically read the Joker thing because it does play into something that could be a major event over a number of the different Batman books that I'm not sure if he was actually supposed to say what he actually said. So the question was, you got a lot of readers' interest in the Joker's face, and in issue four ended with his face hanging there. Can you tell us about any can you tell us anything about your part in that story and what we may see from it again in the future? To which Tony Daniel replied, Well with a character like the Joker, there's a lot of potential for stories about a guy who is the Joker who doesn't look like the Joker, who's unrecognizable has a different identity. I think that's going to be the ultimate challenge for Batman. When he does rear his head again, it's going to be a head he's never seen before, and we won't know who it is, or how he's been there all along. I do have some big plans for him, and why he had the Dollmaker do this and change what he looks like. I'm sure people are wondering, is he walking around with no face? Well, yeah, maybe for a few hours, but not for long. Well, we will definitely be 
getting back to that and finding out what his whole scheme is and why he did this. And it is part of something diabolical and sinister. And it's something that a guy like Joker would do. No one else would do this and go through these extraordinary means to change his appearance and put his life on the line for this twisted scheme. So that's what he has to say. I just think that if it is truly something that is going to be Joker no longer obviously having his iconic face in any of the books, and this is something that is set in stone, obviously his face has been peeled off. But there's no one to say that his face can't be put back on because we know that he's been shot in the head and just walks around with a bullet hole in his forehead currently. So there's no there's no way that to say that you know, that his face couldn't be put be put back on, but at the same time, I have to wonder if, you know, messing with the iconic look of the Joker by getting rid of his signature face would actually not really, would actually harm the character more so than uh, help it out. But what what's interesting to me is if it's something that legitimately they're going to go with it, they're full on, this is something that's going to happen, it's not just something that Tony Daniel wants to do, in detective comics and it's going to happen throughout the entire Batman universe or bigger scheme of things the entire DC universe then I would think that this would be something that would be if it was a story that actually involved Joker coming back it would be involved in more than just one issue or one series this whole Joker thing is really confusing <laughs> he first appeared in the New 52 in this Dark Knight storyline we saw him in Dark Knight which it turns out wasn't actually the case but I know that they want to use the Joker because he's the best Batman villain, and they want to make it really special, but I'm really confused right now. I'm not sure what to expect, and it's not really like I'm excited for it. It's kind of just, a lot, a lot of this is really confusing, so I'm not really sure where where they're going with this. I can't imagine the point of tearing off Joker's face from here, but I mean, it's, a, it's an unraveling storyline, so I'm sure it will be explained, but right now it's like, I don't know what's going on. I can't see this being like a a real... Sort of like a set in stone permanent Joker has a different face. I don't think they'd do that. I don't think DC would risk doing that to one of the most iconic characters of DC, probably the most iconic villain ever. But I do think it's a really interesting idea because the thing about the Joker is whilst it's an iconic look, it's not a costume. It's sort of it's just the way the Joker looks, whereas like Scarecrow puts on the mask, Bane has the mask and the the venom and stuff like that. The thing about the Joker is it's just the way he looks. So if you take that away, it doesn't affect him. So I think it could be interesting to see where that goes. But I don't think it's in any way going to last sort of any more than a year at most. <laughs> uh, I certainly agree with Don here that I don't really know what's going on either. And it's a really strange, small piece of a storyline. And I guess it kind of reminds me of James Jr., where there was just a little bit of him um, dotted throughout Detective before it was like a larger story. And so we just have a little piece of this, this, this face storyline dotted throughout, and hopefully there'll be some sort of story to wrap it up. But if, like I think, uh, you know, all of this stuff in Detective is happening before before the stuff that is currently going on, if that makes sense. I do wonder if we see the Joker in, say, Batman or something, is he going to have, you know, visible marks from this? If, I don't, I don't know. It's just very strange. I just wonder why he would get his face ripped off to begin with. But whatever, I suppose. So, again, a little bit of a condensed version of the news. The solicitations for March were also released over the past four weeks. 
nothing really spectacular or brand new came out of that. So again, there's nothing really there that's really newsworthy. You can, of course, check out the solicitations on the website. But that is going to be it for news. So let's jump into these nine or ten books that we've got, which I said ten earlier, but it turns out it looks like it's only nine. So I was mistaken there, but nine books is still a lot. So let's jump into our first issue, which is Batman Odyssey number two. What do you think, Robin? A little gay? No way, Batman. I think it looks pretty cool. Batman Odyssey number two, written in the loosest sense of the word, and drawn by Neil Adams. The issue opens with the standard intro of Bruce talking to an unknown individual, except this time he has hidden his Sasquatch chest beneath a Green Lantern t-shirt. Back in the center of the Earth, Batman, Jamroth, Bok, and Primus are continuing their odyssey to save Talia al Ghul. They decide they need tra- transport, so they borrow some giant bats from trolls, but as they are flying, they notice some of Sensei's men on stolen T-Rexes. Batman takes one of them out by jumping from his bat to a T-Rex, kicking off its rider before his cape gets caught in the dinosaur's mouth. The T-Rex throws Batman from his body, who gets knocked out instantly, but the remaining two Sensei's men laugh and then disappear from the story. Being Batman, it doesn't take Bruce long to come to, at which point he leaps upon a T-Rex's back and rides it back to its home. Amazingly, or perhaps just for plot convenience, the centre of the Earth still receives radio signals, and not only that, the inhabitants, or humanoid dinosaurs, have developed the technology to use them, while still travelling on giant creatures. On his journey, Batman is attacked by a tribe who claim to to believe that Batman was one of Sensei's men, but Jamrock who turn, and who turns out to be Prince Primus show up to help him. Meanwhile, Dick is defying Alfred and is heading into the cave that leads to the centre of the Earth. But back to Batman, the group are having a feast with the tribe when Batman suddenly flips out and harasses the tribe. He finds out that two of the members betrayed the rest, but mid-emotive speech, the tribe slaughter them. To be continued. Alright, Batman Odyssey number two. A couple of things to note. Why is Batman wearing a Green Lantern shirt? I don't know. I, <laughs> it just seems like... It just seems unrealistic that Batman would be sitting around in the Batcave wearing a Green Lantern shirt. Much less wearing any superhero shirt for that matter. Why? I mean, thank goodness he actually wore a shirt instead of wearing nothing on top. Because surely he has a little too much hair. Maybe he could just make a shirt out of his, his chest hair or something. I don't know. But... <laughs> <laughs> the the other thing to note is the the last couple pages where the the tribe is actually having the the actually like slaughters the other two and eats them or whatever. I seriously had no idea what was going on there. I had a real hard time. I had to read it about. I, I'm not even exaggerating when I say this. I had to read through the last few pages about four times to actually figure out exactly what was happening. Because at one point I thought to myself, wait. Is this the two people that went down to the center of the earth with Batman that these people are now eating and Batman is just standing there letting them eat them? And then the part of the problem with that was that the last page where they show the carcasses of the two creatures that were eaten, one of them looks to have a yellow cape. So that made me think that they really did eat those people. And I had no idea what happened to those people that Batman came down there with that I guess were the the caveman equivalent of Batman and Robin. The dialogue is extremely heavy, and, you know, it's one thing to be dialogue-heavy, like, the, the best example I could come up with is Kevin Smith. And just 
just on the sheer fact that his his comics are full of dialogue, that's what he does. This almost seems as if there's it, it's trying to be a Kevin Smith type writer, where we're throwing tons of dialogue in there, and we're creating this these these sequences where Batman has to be around tons of characters so that there's a ton going on so that there's a ton to draw it just the problem is that it doesn't flow it doesn't flow at all the adding of a bunch of creatures that you can't actually tell what they are and then saying oh well i'm gonna have all these creatures interact in different ways some of them are good some of them are bad some of them start eating each other how do you have any idea what the heck's going on if you don't actually know, number one, who these characters are because there hasn't been enough time to actually establish who the characters are, and two, if they all look crazy, weird-looking, and they don't actually have uh, significant features, I guess, when you look at their dead carcasses, I guess it's pretty difficult to actually understand what's going on. So, surprise, surprise, issue number two, I still don't know what's going on, and I'm not really happy with this. This this series continues to harm Neil Adams' legendary status. Uh, one out of five bad ranks. Well, that's a shocker. Speaking as someone who is currently wearing a superhero shirt, I find it uh, interesting that like the first thing I see is Bruce Wayne kind of staring at me with his fluttered eyes. The, there's something weird about that image. Like someone did his eye, like Alfred did his eyelashes or something. He looks really weird, especially because he's staring right at the right at the camera. I agree with Dustin that. With the t-shirt, the characterization is kind of weird in this, this comic. Everything's weird in this comic, but that goes without saying. But Batman's voice, I will say that I think Neil Adams, for someone who's, who's writing Batman very oddly, he kind of gets it closer than Tony Daniel does, in my opinion. But Batman's voice is still very, very, like, it doesn't really sound like Batman at all. It sounds like another, a, a wholly different character. Even considering if this were a 70s tale, it still doesn't sound like that Batman. Like he says when he's running to jump on the dinosaur... I, like as though we were Woody, Woody Allen. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I really don't like this. I love it. Like it's that doesn't sound like Batman at all. And this is inner monologue. Aside from that, I have no idea what the heck is going on. Not a clue. I try to make sense of this, and it, now, all of a sudden, Batman is sort of like in an Avatar-esque world, talking to the the Navi. Yeah, if I don't know what the story what the story is, I can't really discern it. And that is a feeling of the writing, obviously, so I'll, too, give it one out of five batterings. I still like this. Not as much as I like the last issue, but I think that's because, like I said, I had to summarize this one. Although the art was a lot more inconsistent, and I wasn't so keen on it on this issue. Uh, I also think the letterer might have got confused and accidentally pasted in one of Neil Adams's notes when uh, I read the line, backlighting looks good on the costume that way. <laughs> What? <laughs> it was a line. Yeah. I did get, I did get lost a couple of times whilst reading this, but I still kind of followed the story, and I know where it's going. Uh, like I said in the last podcast, I'm just kind of reading this as it's really crazy fun, and that's working for me. And speaking of crazy, I wouldn't be surprised if Bruce was talking to himself at the end of this because he did get a little bit schizo at a few points in this issue. But I'm going to give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. And then there was me. I actually did read it this time, so I'm trying to keep my my high reputation. Two things, I guess, that I want to comment on regarding the other people. Number one, Donovan said, I wonder if 
Alfred is <laughs> doing Batman's eyelashes, and that just sort of made me flash. I think Josh Bertone will appreciate this. Flash to Lost. And Richard, how they always commented on him as having eyeliner. That's just kind of what I remembered. But Donovan also brings up a good point about Bruce's voice. And that was the one thing that really struck me as odd as well. You know, this feeling that that it's really off kind of starts off right away. Number one, yeah, why is he in a Green Lantern shirt? Wouldn't he wear his own shirt if he's going to wear something? And then, you know, just his diction and tone surrounding what he is saying seems really off. Like, it seems like... What he's talking about with Dick and everything and, and his parents seems like it'd be a heavier tone, but he's treating it very light, and that just seems strange for me. Then in Joe's summary, he, he just touched upon, he said, meanwhile, Dick goes against Alfred's, um, his wishes, and then, you know, back to Batman. And that's exactly what it felt like. It just seems like for two panels, we see Robin, and then it goes back. Why even have those panels there in the first place? It just seemed really out of place. I just thought this was a very strange issue. Uh, no wonder I couldn't read the last one, but at least I, I went through this one. You know, th- apparently they got TV and radio in the center of the earth. Batman has this awkward time riding a dino, and then a random blast of wind shifts his cape and the dino grabs. That was the strangest scene I have ever, <laughs> ever seen, I think. And, you know, then Batman gives a sort of pedo lesson to the dino, dino people because he kind of talks about them like, well, aren't these your equals, and why would you eat that? I don't know. I, I, can't, I couldn't follow that kind of lost boy dinner scene. I, I don't know. It's just a confusing book, in my opinion. I give this 0.5 out of 5 Batarangs. So out of four reviews, that is going to give the issue a total of 1.5 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman the Dark Knight, number 3. can you as precious to me as you were to your own mother and father. I swore to them that I would protect you, and I haven't. The mayor's going to dump him in the spring. Really? Mm-hmm. But he's a hero, a war hero. This is peacetime. You think this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. me for fastest recap time ever. Batman the Dark Knight number three. Story by David Finch and Paul Jenkins. Written by Paul Jenkins. Illustrated by David Finch. We begin by seeing Batman fight this steroided up Joker uh, in the middle of the train. And Joker's talking him and laughing him. But at one point, Batman breaks his teeth with, with his, the front of his cowl and says, you know, you're not the Joker because the Joker's left-handed. The Joker says, that's not funny. I am the Joker. But then we see him grow several eyes and Shock and awe, it's, it's Clayface, as though this has never been done before. But no, it's, it's Clayface, and he still starts to try to attack Batman. But then his eyes start bleeding, just like Two-Face did in the last episode. And Batman's taken aback, and then he's about to get drugged up by the white rabbit. She has a type of hypodermic needle, and is about to inject him with something. But then the Flash comes and saves the day by busting right through the train. So we cut to a scene with the GCPD investigating the train. 
and Forbes is uh, talking bad about the Batman, saying we need to capture the Batman, when all of a sudden Clayface is tied up and thrown on, to, on top of his police car. Batman tells Lieutenant Forbes not to mess with him or his people, or he will find him. We cut to the date between Bruce Wayne and the uh, voluptuous Miss Jai. They make some small talk, and then Bruce says gets a message from Alfred saying that the White Rabbit was spotted four minutes ago near Robinsonville, which implies that he suspected Jai of being the White Rabbit, but now that that's cleared up, they can continue the date. Later on in the Batcave, we see that there's been toxins in the blood that, that correlate to one of Poison Ivy's toxins. And Batman says that Poison Ivy is usually on the side of the angels, but lately, as she's been with the Birds of Prey, uh, trust level has gone way down, which is interesting. So Batman enlists the help of the Flash again, and they investigate one of Poison Ivy's headquarters. Flash pricks his thumb on a poison thorn, and he rushes out there so he can speed up the, his metabolism and have the poison flow through his system and get it out of the system. And then the issue ends with Batman going through Ivy's room and seeing, like, it's, it's pretty much destroyed with trees and branches everywhere, and it looks like she's been kidnapped. To be continued. Okay, Batman the Dark Knight, number three. This was an interesting issue. You know, the story's not the most original story. It's not the most interesting story. But it is, it is it's pretty good. I, I'm not going to say that it's, it's crap, because it's not. It's... I'm interested to see where it's actually going. The end of issue two, we, I didn't have any idea that it was actually Clayface instead of the Joker. So that was a bit of a surprise because I didn't see it happen happening. But at the same time, it has happened numerous times in the past. As far as the rest of the story, I'm not real sure what the Poison Ivy thing, like why Poison Ivy is going to be needed to be part of this other than, well, David Finch wants to be able to draw Poison Ivy. But uh, one thing that's interesting is I did like the little nod to what's happening with the Birds of Prey. We know that the Birds of Prey are considered, you know, on the wrong side of the law currently. And by Poison Ivy being on the right side of the law, I guess, in Gotham City Sirens, and now joining the Birds of Prey, Batman's stating that it puts her, it, it puts her in a questionable status of which side she's actually on is very interesting to me because... We haven't actually seen why the Birds of Prey are on the wrong side of the law. But to me, it's interesting to see that Batman is actually recognizing that in a completely different series. I like things like that. I like when it ties together. But if she is, in fact, kidnapped and she is not, in fact, with the Birds of Prey, well, then that all goes out the window because that means what was the point of even mentioning that she's part of the Birds of Prey if she's not with the Birds of Prey, but she is in the Birds of Prey series. If you could follow that thought for a second. As far as the art goes, I like the art. I don't have anything against the art. I, I will say this, okay? there was a This was a while back. We reviewed Batman the Dark Knight back when David Finch was writing the series, and we completely berated it, and we said how horrible it was. And I remember getting a comment from a listener saying, you know, how can you give the, the book a, a zero out of five batarangs or a half, of, a half a batarang out of five, but the art is so good? And the thing is, the art can be good, but if the story is not there, it doesn't matter what the art looks like, you're not going to get anything worthwhile. For example, look at Batman Odyssey. Nobody understands the story. I am still waiting to see an email from somebody saying, oh, I know exactly what's going on. Here's what's going on because it isn't happening because nobody knows what's going on. Neil Adams' art is not as good as it was in the past, and that has to do with the fact that he, his art style has changed, but also because of the crappy story. If you have a crappy story, you're going to get crappy art. But 
This is kind of a weird tangent because I actually like the art in this issue. <laughs> I like the art, and to be quite honest, if the White Rabbit popped off the comic book page, I would think she's probably one of the hottest characters in the Batman universe right now. <laughs> and that's just the reality. David Finch does a very good job at drawing this character, and the character is very attractive. I mean, I don't think, in comparison to what we've seen in some of the other books through over the last couple of years, like with Catwoman you know, wearing the skimpy little outfits that she wears, or any of these other characters that they have in the Batman universe, I don't think any of them have looked as good as the White Rabbit looks in, the ba- in Batman the Dark Knight. I think that has to do with David Finch, not so much the actual character, and I give him props for that. Overall, okay issue, not the best thing in the world, but I'm going to give it a, an average 2.5 out of 5 bat ranks. I agree with Dustin in that Dark Knight as a title is above average comparatively to the last volume. Like By and large, it's, it's better than the last volume. Uh, Paul Jenkins has at least given us a, a sensible narrative and sensible dialogue somewhat. Not much is really happening. It's, gonna, it's kind of plodding along, but it's, it's entertaining. You see Batman have some fight scenes and do some detective work. It's, it's a very basic Batman story, but it's inoffensive in an era where a lot of things... <laughs> never mind. But the Clayface thing reminded me a bit of Hush, because I think that's the last time we saw Clayface impersonate somebody like that. The character revealed at the end, and, and then by the beginning of the next issue, he was revealed to be Clayface, which I suppose was almost 10 years ago. I mean, it was interesting. I, don't, I didn't mind that like it was the Joker who was Clayface. I thought that was a pretty, pretty fair game. And I kind of liked how the Flash was used in this issue. I mean... It's it's interesting to like last issue we saw the Bad Family we saw Robin Nightwing Batgirl and all those other characters and this one we see some more of the Justice League characters because in Justice League right now that's taking place in the past seeing Batman and Flash work together is interesting and we also I think we talked about uh, Flashpoint number five we wondered if Flash and Batman were supposed to have a, a closer relationship I think than they usually did in the previous uh, universe I agree with Dustin in that. David, I think David Finch is a really, really good artist. I mean, it doesn't matter what horrible story he's working on, whether it's Ultimatum or Batman the Dark Knight, Volume 1. But I think his art is very consistent. And I think I, I agree the White Rabbit looks pretty, pretty hot for a woman with pink eyes. And it's interesting because I think when you have a character this attractive, it's really easy to go for the cheesecake and having the panels depict her in ridiculous poses or whatever. And she is ridiculous poses, but she's not like... She's not, like, dancing in front of Batman and, like, showing her butt right in front of his face or whatever. She's kind of just being playful or whatever. And it's an interesting comparison to other art. But I, it's probably a matter of time before she's depicted in a lot more degrading fashion. But for right now, I agree it is, it is pretty fun to look at. The biggest question mark for me was the whole Poison Ivy thing. Because we have this, like, oh, Poison Ivy, you know, we used to trust her. But now that she's on the Birds of Prey, we can't trust her. And it's like, what? I they, I know it's a new dimension and all that stuff, but they can't just like throw that out there. And just because one character is, is wanted of murder that they could easily solve, I didn't like that. And and it's not. I'm not even going to blame it on David Finch and Paul Jenkins. I, I blame it on the new status quo because it's really, really kind of like just thrown in there, just for, almost for shock value, and just kind of confuses and annoys me. But I'm not basing that. I'm, I'm not basing this issue off that. It's not. That sounded like an editorial mandate over all things. So I will give this three out of five better ranks. I was surprised how much I liked this issue, and it might have been partly as a comparison to what we've read so far, but the scene where it turned out to be Clayface, not the Joker, I really liked that, and I thought that was drawn really well, and I actually thought the whole book looked a lot better than the other issues have been, as if it hadn't been rushed, 
and I actually wouldn't be surprised because I thought the art was better and the dialogue I thought was a lot better if this was the issue where Paul Jenkins really started to do the put the writing on it and then David Finch started to focus more on the art because I think both things looked like there'd been more time I thought the dialogue was more serious and yeah less stupid which I like I really like the inclusion of the Flash because he's one of my favorite characters and I like that Batman and the Flash have that close relationship especially as Don just said after the Flashpoint you would have thought that they would and it was definitely made out that way that they were good friends so if anything I think Batman should have been wearing a Flash t-shirt in Batman Odyssey but <laughs> <laughs> I really like this issue I was surprised how much I did and I'm going to give this four out of five batterings. Well, you know, I, I, I thought it, it was random. And sometimes I just don't like the word random because are all things, or is anything random or is it, you know, intentional? But frankly, random that Joker wasn't Joker and it was really Clayface. I mean, wh- why? What purpose does that serve? And then, of course, we have Poison Ivy. Are we just trying to throw every big character into this book at once? And then we have Batman trusting Poison Ivy, but does not trust Dinah and the Birds of Prey. I did enjoy bringing, you know, the name of the Birds of Prey in there, but the thought of not trusting that team, but trusting a reformed with little bunny quotes. Uh, Supervillain is, it, it doesn't, I can't really wrap my mind around it. So I'm just like, this is a very topsy-turvy Alice in Wonderland world, which I guess fits since we have the White Rabbit running around. White Rabbit continues to be an enigma to both myself and Batman. You know, she makes strange comments to him, basically flirting while threatening at the same time. Boy, only she can do that. It was fun to see Flash in this book, but I don't really think it fits as well. You know, do we just take it for granted that they have a good relationship and work together often, that he can just call him up and he'll be there? And as quickly as Flash arrives, you know, just a prick to his finger is all it takes to get Batman back to having his book all to himself. How convenient is that? I don't like Batman threatening the IA officer. You know, normally Batman would respect an officer of the law and just try to stay out of his way, you know, do his thing, but stay out of the spotlight, rather than directly confronting somebody so it it just didn't really seem like the type of batman that we know and love and then it is interesting to see bruce and i like to call her jay i don't know if jay is the uh, i'm just gonna go with jay out on a date you know strangest dinner conversation ever she seems a little sexually intense (laughs) and it's clear that bruce suspects her of being the white rabbit as as don pointed out but, you know, while Alfred puts him off that trail, I feel like this is just a false trail for us. I, I think we're just being fed some, some information. I think that this is probably one of the better issues that we have read, but, you know, just a lot of the things, the little things, don't really add up, in my opinion. 3.5 out of 5 batterings. So, out of four reviews, that is going to give Batman <laughs> in the Dark Knight number 3 a total of 3 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman and Robin, number four. I got a little better toward the end. But let's not kid ourselves, Tucker. It's seen better days. It's time you and Jelinek gave this take on Batman a rest. Think about a new one. Something more dramatic, like that episode, Chilly, Chilly Night? Written by P. 
Peter Tomasi, art by Patrick Gleason. The issue starts off right where we left off with the last issue with Batman and Robin being strapped to a car at a drive-thru watching a video of Gotham's most notorious criminals being taken away or news footage essentially of them taking down police or being captured or whatnot. And nobody appears and presents them with the case of you should be killing these people, not letting them live. You've realized this from the very beginning. The more you do this, the more it continues to happen. Um, after nobody basically tells Batman that his entire idea is wrong and he should have taken everything that he learned from Henry, Henry Ducard and used it, he essentially threatens to kill Batman so that Damien can live his life taking out the villains like he's meant to do. Out of nowhere, the Batplane appears and it's being radio controlled by none other than Alfred from the Batcave. He takes a number of rubber bullets and starts shooting them at... He starts shooting him at nobody, and then that basically buys time for Batman to es- escape and unparalyze Damien, who was paralyzed in the last episode, by a simple pressure point on his forehead. After that, they leave after nobody blows up a tank and buys himself some time so that he's not discovered. Back at the Batcave, Batman's being bandaged up from his wounds, and Damien's insisting that Batman shows him the move to basically put someone into a coma. After Bruce denies his quest, they get into an argument going back and forth about how basically Bruce isn't telling Damien everything and Damien needs to know these things, otherwise he's putting the team in ri- at risk. Um, so Batman basically says, well, here's the information you want to know. Henry Ducard was the last name or was the last person who trained me, and his son was Morgan Ducard, who is nobody. Basically, they come to the conclusion that it's the same thing of the last couple stories where Bruce isn't saying anything to Damien, Damien is getting upset about it, and believes that there's a reason why he's not saying everything. Damien storms off at the dog, and Bruce and Alfred exchange some words about basically... Batman's fathering skills are not very good. See Damien standing at the graves of his grandparents, and he kills a firebug, or lightning bug, or I know a bunch of people call him different things, but a lightning bug, and smears the liquid inside of it onto his hand so his hand glows. Out of nowhere, nobody shows up and basically tells Damien that he can take out Batman and he will no longer have to live a life of lies because he'll be able to do what he was meant to do, which is to take out the criminals by killing them. And the end of the issue ends with Damien extinguishing the light on his palm and him going into the darkness. That is Batman Robin number four. Interesting issue. A couple things. I think it's interesting to learn, as always, the history elements. We learn about the, the origin of Morgan Ducard we actually know that he's tied to actually Bruce Wayne's history, which we assumed and we knew from past issues, but this actually brings it down and narrows it down to a specific period by telling us his last name. In addition to that, having Bruce tell Damien, oh, there were six people who trained me, again, dives a little bit more into that history element that I I really enjoy. Now, here's where I get a little bit not so happy about this issue. Oh? I'm getting pretty tired of the Bruce doesn't tell Damien anything Damien gets upset because Bruce is hiding something and then Alfred sits there and tells them both to chill out 
it's getting tiresome. You know, the thing is, I'm not saying this is a bad story, because it's not. But the problem is that every single issue is the exact same thing. Bruce tells Alfred he has to do something. He d- and then Damien appears and says, all right, let's go on patrol. Bruce replies, no, you're not going on patrol. No, I'm not going to teach you this maneuver. No, I'm not going to do this. No, I'm not going to do that. But doesn't explain why. Bruce takes off. Damien does what he wants because, well, it doesn't matter because Bruce doesn't trust him. So he's, he's just going to do what he wants. And then the issue ends with them being in some kind of peril and them being able to escape by... You know, obviously it's not by chance, but almost by chance, them being able to escape the predicament that they're in, and them ending back up at the Batcave only to exchange the exact same conversation yet again. It's getting tiresome. They need to move this along. I see that they are, by the end of this issue, by Morgan basically convincing Damien that this is, you know, that this is not the way that Damien should be living, and I agree. This is, you know, if I had to listen to four different issues of being told the exact same thing over and over again and not g- gaining respect or not gaining trust, despite the fact that the person is blowing steam saying that we that the, that we are, but it's clear that it's not, I would probably get pretty pissed about it too and side with the bad guy, especially if my tendencies are to go to the dark side, you know. So, fifth issue better not have the exact same thing where Bruce refuses to tell Damien something and Damien gets pissed about it and they end up in a situation again because it's this is four issues in and it's the exact same thing this has happened in every single issue and it doesn't matter if it's the beginning of a mission or the end of a mission it happens every single issue they need to change it up a little bit so like I said not a bad issue I like the art I like the story. I'm just getting tired of this exact same situations happening in every single issue. So I'm going to give it a 3 out of 5 battering. That was a very good review because Dustin, <laughs> if I should say so myself, I, Dustin isn't wrong that basically the, this entire title is basically Bruce and Damien being in conflict over how they feel that the other should treat each other, which I think is an interesting dynamic for a father and son. I really enjoyed this issue. If I, I'm not sure what I didn't like about it, what's keeping me from getting a perfect score. Although, I, I think Dustin has hit a, a good point that every issue is some sort of conflict with Batman and Robin, and we knew this going on th- that it was going to be. What I thought this issue did differently was that it had them sort of elaborate more than just Batman saying, you can't do this, or you must do that, and Damien, like, showing uh, contempt of those decisions. I mean, the last issue, it was sort of like, you know, stay here, Damien. No, I don't want to. I'm going on anyway. This issue, we get a little bit more of, like, you know, why Bruce says this, you know, you're 10 years old. I don't care what you did when you were three. You, got, you need to listen to me. I need to trust you. I need to respect you. I'm not feeling that right now. Right now, you're in this level. I need you to be at this level for me to trust you. You need to be a better partner for this reason. Listen to me what I'm saying. And Damien's protests aren't exactly wrong because it's, it would be so easy for him to be like a petulant little child and versus just watch that issue by issue. But Damien's saying, why did this guy know my secret identity? Why did he know your secret identity? Why did he know how to take us down? Why do you know how to find us? Why do you know this? Like, I mean, like, you know, you're not telling me what I need to know to survive out there. There would be no reason for worry if you just let me know what was going on. And Batman's like, you know, if I told you what's going on, you would have done what you've done anyway. I thought the writing was really good in showing both characters' perspectives and having them not both come off as, you know, just insolent adults. I mean, Batman was very Batman and Damien was very Damien, but they weren't like... They weren't stupid for, for the sake of the reader saying, oh, well, they're being stupid. When will they ever learn? Ha, ha, ha. I thought they were both very understandable and both very sympathetic. 
the first part of the issue I enjoy because when Liberty says, any last words, Batman? He says, yes, Alfred, lock and load. And the, the guy gets shot up by a bunch of rubber bullets by a remote-controlled Batwing. I thought that was awesome. I thought the art was very good. I think Patrick Leeson's a lot better than he was when he was on the, the run previous. I love that full-page splash of Batman and Robin swinging away from the, from the explosion Bruce Willis style. I think it's very cool. And I like the ending where Damien goes to his grandparents' grave. And he's not really petulant at them. He's just saying, you know, your son sucks. You know, like, I found that pretty interesting. And I like the idea that nobody is going to be a particular nemesis for Batman and Robin in this way. The only question I have is, I looked back at issue two where we first see uh, Morgan Ducard. And from the art, I was pretty sure he was a black guy because he had, like, a broad nose and, like, bit lips and a tanned skin. And this one, this is, oh, well, he's, he's Henri Ducard's son. And then Henry Henri Ducard, like a white Frenchman. And they, they show images of him here, and there's nothing to really, like, kind of, like, differentiate between that. So that's, that kind of slipped me up. But I really enjoyed this issue. For some reason, I'm giving it a 4.5 out of 5, but I thought it was a very good issue. And I can see Dustin's complaints, but I can't wait to see how the issue turns out in the next issue. I haven't been that struck on this series since it started. This was the first issue I read that I actually started i think i now get it and i'm I, I enjoyed this issue a lot although i do agree with dustin that i think nearly everything in this we've seen before not just the arguments between damien and bruce because that has been in the series consistently but the sort of the villain slash anti-hero who says oh it's very similar to jason todd in that it's oh you only go so far why don't you just kill these people and we've seen that a lot before, but I think it's it's writing it in a way that's very interesting, and it makes it seem fresh. And every time we see these arguments between Bruce and Damien, there's always like a new point to it. It's not the same argument being said over and over again. There's always different things in there which make it make me go, oh, that's yeah, that's kind of interesting. I haven't really thought about that before. So I do like it, and I think it's. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes. I do agree, again, with Dustin, that if it keeps going on, I'm going to get very bored of it very quickly. But as an issue, I liked it. I'm still not sold in the art, but that's just a taste thing. It's more the cartoony style than anything else, which I'm not a fan of. But I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. Well, I guess before I do this, I should tender my resignation because I guess that's better than getting fired since I'm going to just <laughs> out and out disagree with Dustin. Where to start? I guess I'll start with everything else and then go into into the big uh, anti-Dustin campaign. <laughs> so I really like the conversation between Batman and Morgan. You know, I know that some people think villains talk too much, which certainly a lot of the times is true. You know, why not just get down to business? But I, I think it really fits the storyline here. It's nice to see Bruce really standing up to his beliefs and see them contrast with, with Morgan's belief. And then, you know, with his son actually looking on at this debate and these kind of two sides, and Damien certainly is wavering with these uh, two sides, so that's really interesting. And, you know, as for Damien, do we finally see a break in his armor? Because he did say, you know, no, no, don't, because he didn't want his father to be killed by Morgan, so I thought that was great. I love seeing Alfred helping out here. It was different seeing Bruce need help rather than getting out of the situation on his own, which I think we always see. So it was great to see Alfred. And then 
Okay, I guess, yeah, let's get into it. So the Bruce and Damien conversation in the cave. I think it's great because, again, it's showing the struggle between the two. And, yes, we've seen this all the time, but this is what the book is, and I think it's what the book really needs to be, especially in this storyline. You know, both are making good points, but you can also see in the points that they're making how their reasoning in different ways are flawed in how they're thinking about everything. So this then transitions into a nice backstory on Bruce, his training and his relationship with the bad guy. And it was nice to see the blending of the past with the present and to learn more about Morgan. So the final scene, which connects again back to good old Damien, I think this is why we need to have the conflict over and over again between Bruce and Damien, because this Morgan guy is really seducing the innocent, if we can call Damien innocent in that way, because he's sort of representing the anti-Bruce. And if Damien wasn't filled with all these doubts and angers, then I don't think it would be nearly as easy to try to get him to come over to the dark side. That's why I think these conversations need to happen, and that's why I think that they are really working for me anyways. I do, as a final comment, really like that final scene. I think it's my favorite scene. I I like that the dog comes up besides Damien, and Damien is actually showing some love towards the dog. He may actually give him a name. Isn't that great? Uh, Because I think it shows Damien's growth of character. Because he kind of went from just ignoring the dog to now perhaps he'll have some sort of companion. And dogs are really good good judge of character, you know, kind of seeing someone's soul. So I think that's, that's really great to, to see. So I give this a 4 out of 5. And I do agree that, you know, if these conversations go on for 20 issues, then that's going to be a problem. But I think especially for this storyline, for the beginning of this book and seeing these two together for really the first time, that these do need to have, they do need to happen. So there you go. Four out of five batterings. Goodbye, friends. So out of four reviews, Batman Robin, number four gets a total of... Four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batgirl number four. I'll shake your hand, Joker. Uh, okay, I'll shake your hand too. Another practical joke, Joker. And not exactly Batman. No, it's my lethal Joker buzzer. One by one, your five senses will leave you. Then your lungs will collapse. And shortly, you'll be kaput, feeny, defunct. Oh, oh, sorry we can't stay for the big finish, Batman. But I'll always treasure the memory of this moment. (laughs) Let's go! It's a minute. Not too good. What took you so long, Batgirl? Rush hour traffic, plus all the lights were against me. And you wouldn't have wanted me to speed, would you? Your good driving habits almost cost us our lives. Rules are rules, Robin. But you do have a point. 
Black Girl number four, An End to Dreams. Writer Gail Simone, penciler Ardian Siaf, inker Vicente Sefuentes, and colorist Ulysses Areola. The issue opens with a startling image of Babs's Batgirl sitting in a wheelchair. We then see Barbara Gordon yelling at Batgirl, asking why her previous life with all her loved ones was not good enough. The guilt trip continues as Barbara, with an image of mirror behind her, asks why she received a miracle when so many others never received one. As she cries to look at herself in the mirror, this literally happens as our friendly antagonist opens his cape and we see Batgirl and Barbara displayed all over. With a jolt, Barbara wakes up from the dream in her finally furnished room. (laughs) It is two days before Christmas, and Barbara goes outside her room to find Elysia, home from work and sitting in front of a Christmas tree. The two speak of the best Christmas gifts they ever received. Elysia's was a trip to culinary school from her parents, and Babs, well, we're not too sure about that. Just as Babs begins to open up about her mother leaving, a work-stressed father and a mysterious cure in Africa, she clams up and leaves, almost without her shoes. In order to clear her head, Babs goes out as Batgirl and quickly finds a scene that needs her help. After she disposes of the perps, the couple in need thank her for allowing them to see their kids again. This gives Babs an idea. At a Gotham cemetery, we see Mirror paying his respect to his wife and twin girls. He finds a note at the gravesite from Batgirl. In it, she tells him that he shames the memory of his family, that she knows everything about him and will take him down, and basically dares him to meet her at a park. In dramatic fashion, the showdown happens in a hall of mirrors. Batgirl, clearly having learned from the previous time that she faced Mirror, takes her time and attacks strategically. She is able to break his face mask, and then she starts an elaborate slideshow of the accident that killed his family. Distraught and distracted, since the images are all over him, Batgirl finally takes him down. What, what? Later that evening, Babs and Elysia trade gifts, with Elysia receiving a Joe Way ceramic cookie knife, and Babs getting a statue of, well, of something. I don't know what it was. As the doorbell rings, we are left with the strangest of cliffhangers as Barbara Gordon Sr. shows up on the doorstep. (gasps) Bum, bum, bum. Okay, Batgirl number four. I thought this was an interesting issue. I mean, clearly we, we are starting to find out a little bit more about the actual miracle, per se, due to the fact that it had to do, it, it almost happened a year ago, and it was a, the fact that it had to do with a clinic in South Africa. I don't have a lot to say about this issue. It's it's interesting that, well, one, okay, the mirror character got taken down. This just is another thing in my mind that I guess uh, the issue fours are the first the uh, the editorial says okay wrap up your first story so we can make some sort of trade paperback because this is well there will be others I'm not clearly we haven't actually reviewed them yet but there are other issues that the current story arc ends in issue four I'm sure that's not a huge coincidence by any means but at the same time the mirror story wraps up I'm pretty sure over the last three issues, the Mirror Story probably could have been a three-issue story arc and not a four-issue story arc because there seemed to be a decent amount of filler. But the filler that was in this issue, I think, was justified and well-deserving because we've been actually lacking the filler that I would 
that I like, which is the personal life filler. You know, we've seen, we saw, I complained about last episode how for some reason, you know, we're, we're just expected to know all of these things. After issue three, she made the, uh, back, Barbara Gordon made the comment about, oh, I can't, I, I'm not dating my therapist because uh, I, I'm just not. It's, we, he doesn't, he w- doesn't want to date me. Uh, despite the fact that the only inclination that he didn't want to de- date her was just a, you know, far off comment of, I don't know that we should be doing this. And that was it. And somehow we were supposed to take that one little comment to the extreme and yeah. say, no way that this is ever going to happen because this can't happen. So, the you know, her getting a little bit more acquainted with her, her roommate, us finding out a little bit more about her roommate, about how her roommate is a cook and is either going or did go to culinary school. You know, it, that's the stuff I want. I want to be able to build up this universe within just the one issue so that all of these supporting characters that are appearing multiple times especially characters that we haven't seen before, get a little bit more page time, I guess. Because I don't know anything about her roommate. I mean, the last time I remember seeing her roommate was issue one where she, where Barbara walks into this apartment and says, oh, hey, I'm so-and-so. Oh, really? Okay, cool. By the way, I, I, I'm an anarchist. Look, I draw stuff on walls. <laughs> she threatened to call, call the cops because Barbara was victimized. Right, and then there was the time that she... Right, and there was that time, too, that she helped patch Barbara up and basically insisted that if this was because of a, a man who did this to her, you know, she, she needs to call the cops and not, you know, take the, the guy's side. But we, we didn't know a lot about the character, so at least giving her a little bit of history, I like that. I'm all about the history, I'll say it again and again. Build the history with inside the, the comics. Especially if you're going to introduce new characters. If they're going to be around for a while, because they're going to be the roommate of, of, a, of the main character of the series, you need to tell some information about that character, and then you can use the information that you're telling to actually build a character and make, make that character more important. So, overall, I think this was a good issue. don't really have any complaints, other than just the fact that you know, fourth issue in a story arc that probably could have been, you know, three issues, but that's not related to this issue. That's related to the entire story arc. I thought the art was good. I thought, you know, the the random filler stuff, and then of course the cliffhanger at the end where, you know, Barbara's mother has reappeared, or wants to see Barbara. We'll see how that plays out too. I'm interested in seeing that again, building the history. So, great issue. Four out of five betterings. Now I. Th- think that this was an alright issue. I agree with Dustin that this this should have been issue three. Incredibly pointless filler. But this did this issue did have some good points, but it has some points I kinda I wanna hit up. I really like that first image of Batgirl on the wheelchair kinda sitting there because it's very evocative, it's very dreamlike and it, if it weren't so depressing it would make a nice poster honestly. And with that with that dream sequence, I kind of finding what, what Gail Simone is doing because reading upon Gail Simone's, especially like her interview with Jill Pantazzi way back when during the summer, when this is all announced, it's almost kind of hitting you in the face that this, is, this whole dream sequence and this whole story arc initially is a reaction to the concept that Barbara as Oracle wasn't able to be cured and walk again. Because there's this, there's this whole, why me? Why am I cured and no one else is? Which is very, like, metatextual towards the concept that Bruce Wayne was crippled by Bane and is healed by the end of the story arc. 
you know, character just die and get brought back again. But Barbara Gordon was was crippled, despite the fact that she could have been healed and just didn't want to. But anyway, like, I mean, that, I know she's addressing, and it kind of makes sense towards Barbara, Barbara's character. I think it's being laid on a little bit too thick, and I really, like, this should be the last we're hearing about that kind of thing. The issue itself is alright, although, I don't know what it is, but Adrian Saif, I think he does a really, really nice Batgirl, but his Barbara Gordon always looks off to me. Yeah. I don't know whether it's her face he always draws that, that is shielded by the cowl, but like she, has, she, she can have this immac- immaculately coiffed hair, but her eyes and her face just kind of look very inconsistent from panel to panel. Now, the issue itself, I think the whole takedown with Mirror was interesting. I actually liked how she did the whole welcome to the dark night of your soul kind of thing. I, that, that, that seemed pretty cool. It seemed like something I would read in, in a 1980s Batgirl story. And I, and I liked her, like, elbowing Mirror in the chest. That was, that was a pretty nice image. I think, personally, for me, it's hard for me to get into this book, obviously, because I am not over the booting of Stephanie and Cassandra over Barbara being Batgirl again. But also, just going beyond that, I think it's hard, generally, for a lot of comic book fans to sort of, like, get into female characters because of the way they're written. There's all these kind of perceptions on how female characters would act and should act or whatever. And I think that with Barbara Gordon, it's not... I still think she's being written as an interesting character. And coupled with, with her history, it's, it's sort of... I think it's sort of being, like, kind of slap-shotted. But at the same time, that doesn't mean it's a bad issue or a bad story. But this, this, this title has so much baggage that it's hard for me to just sink into. So I can't give it too much credence, even though probably... I mean, it should probably deserve it. The last thing I'll say is about Barbara's mother, which is funny because... <laughs> <laughs> former podcast host Josh, me and him talked about it because we're uh, continuity freaks. And if you're going on the idea that, that this is probably a new continuity, then it probably is Barbara's new mom and Jim's new father, and Barbara is legitimately Gordon's daughter and everything like that. That's why Barbara's mom at the end looks exactly like Barbara, only slightly older. There is some wiggle room for this to be the same continuity if you go on the idea that Jim's wife, Barbara, did leave him a little bit after they adopted Barbara, this Barbara Gordon, it's very confusing, and maybe she got hair extensions and dyed her hair, but 99% of the time it's probably going to be a new character. This felt very young adult-esque to me. I'm not sure how this is going to play. It could provide some interesting conflict, but I'm not, I'm not expecting it to. But the issue overall was decent. I'll give it 3 out of 5 batterings. I, I like this issue a lot. I think it looks really good. It's one of my favorite-looking new books from DC next to obviously that one because that's amazing yeah I thought the story's good I think issue 3 was a little off for me after because I thought issue 2 was very good issue 3 was a bit off this one I think brought it back although I don't understand why this mirror character is he's only a man and yet he's built up to be like some meta-human he's meant to be incredibly strong I don't understand where that comes from I know she said she was out of practice but that always confused me a bit. I thought the end scene, like, it was kind of difficult to read. I'm not sure if it's because I didn't feel for the mirror so much on an emotional level, because obviously he's driven crazy by the images of his family and stuff. I, I'm not sure if he was overreacting or I just didn't. It didn't quite click with me because you know he's he's been built up as a villain more than a sympathetic character, which is I think is what was being aimed for at that point but I still thought it was a fairly decent story arc especially for a first one I am looking forward to seeing where this book goes I'm glad that we've now got a bit more history with Barbara and how she's able to walk 
and I think we're going to be slowly fed these, like drip fed these small snippets of history and they're going to build up until we actually know what's going on whether that's the the point or if it's just because girl Simone doesn't want to put anything concrete yet and is just they're going to slip side things in until she works out how she's able to walk or not I thought this issue was quite fun to read I'm getting used to Barbara's voice even though it's not really Barbara Gordon but I've not read that much of her outside of this so it's a lot easier for me to accept Barbara as this character opposed to obviously Donovan and Stella but I'm going to give this issue four out of five batterings. Okay. Certainly the opening scene, in my opinion, was probably the most powerful scene and maybe one of the best that we've seen so far in this series. Just, you know, really seeing Batgirl in a wheelchair, I think that that really hits home the mixed feelings and doubts that Babs is feeling surrounding her her refound legs. So I thought that was great. You know, making Bab seem an emotionally aloof character seems a bit forced, in my opinion. But I guess this is what we've been dealing with all along. I mean, she starts talking about some cure, and she's getting there, but then all of a sudden she can't make it. And I just question why. You just have to... You're putting the carrot out there, but we can't eat it. I don't know. But, you know, it seems like talking about a mother walking out on you seems a bit more traumatic than, like, a mere, you know, something really good happening because the mother thing would be bad. So I, I don't necessarily understand that. It's great to see Babs fighting perps again. But, you know, if the entire purpose of the scene was to get Babs just to have a brainstorm, I wonder if there could have been a better way, you know, one that does not necessarily distract from the main story. I've thought a lot about the letter that Babs leaves for Mirror, and it just sort of rubs me the wrong way, I guess. I just don't necessarily see this as something she would do. I mean, yes, she's being intentionally cruel in order to antagonize him, but it seems almost like she's overstepping some sort of ethical line there, you know, even though it's involving a villain. It just seems a little a little much i don't know if that's just me but could there have been another way to him get him to to go where she wanted him to go i enjoyed the hall of mirrors scene i actually i would say i loved it and i thought it, that it was just a clever way to have babs take him down what better way than to use the mirror actually and literally against himself and to really go right for his emotions the exchanging of gifts. I thought this was really weird, given the fact that they honestly have not been living together long, because the evidence I'm pointing to is that Babs still has unopened boxes. And Babs can't even talk to her roommate about the day that she got her legs back. So they're, they're really close enough to share gifts. And, you know, Babs would have only had to have gotten the knife that day since they, she just found out about Elysia's dream to be some sort of culinary genius. So to, to comment, I think, on something Dustin said about learning a lot of the, you know, backstory, history is really good, and, and learning more about these people, I do agree with that. But again, this is Batgirl, and I really want to know about Barbara Gordon first. And then once we flesh out that character, can we kind of add in these other people? But it's just like piecemeal with her, and we're kind of inundated with other stories that I, I feel like could be pushed back. So that's what I think about that. And finally, I think the arrival of Barbara Gordon Sr. 
Number one, it seems like she was just mentioned in Babs' speech so that this appearance would not be so out of left field, but it still is. And number two, how does she even know where Babs lives? No one even brought this up. She would have had to have gone to Jim, and I'm quite sure that he would have called his daughter. Hey, Babs, your mom showed up. I don't know. What's up with that? But. I do think this is the best issue so far, but there are still miles to go to get to the right characterization of Babs. Again, just like Joe said, her voice is off, and the attempted clever remarks made during her narration really don't go over well. They aren't clever, and it just seems like Babs is talking, and that's not how it should be. Steph Brown and Brian Q. Miller writing her certainly had it down with the clever remarks in her head. 3.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so out of four reviews, that is going to give Batgirl number four a total of four out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batwing number four. Batman, 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 come into the house. Batman, why didn't you come in? What are we going to do with all these cakes I made? I am stuck in them. I'm going to go ask Tuba about the cakes. Batwing issue 4, written by Judd Winnick, illustrated by Chris Cross. The issue begins with Batwing tracking down another, another member of the kingdom, but arriving too late as, they've been, as she has been slain by massacre. We find out this character is named Dawnfire, and while Batwing starts to uh, contemplate on who is next and who he can save, we start to get a flashback of his origins with him and his brother Isaac in the army of General Keita. Or I should say Warlord Keita, because that's how they refer to him. Apparently, he and his brother were part of, uh, were a duo nicknamed the Dragonflies who were known for their precision in combat. One day, while they were tracking down one of uh, Overlord Keita's enemies, he, they found him in this uh, refugee camp full of AIDS orphans and widows. So they, the brothers say, okay, we can, we can easily go in there and uh, take him out with no, no one the wiser. But Overlord Keita says, actually, let's blow up the compound. We can't risk it. So the brothers start protesting, no, no, we can do this. Trust us. We can get in there without any uh, innocent lives being lost. But he's having none of it. But before they actually start uh, making any movements into the compound, Isaac starts shooting off his rifle and alerting, uh, alerting um, Keita's enemy of their position. After after a cutback scene to the Haven, we go back to the flashback where we see Kata just beat up Isaac left, right, and center for defying him and uh, disobeying his orders. And he's about to kill him before Isaac takes a big rock and slashes against the guy's head. Um, he he says that you know they're everything that be, they've become, all the all the pain and suffering that they've caused is because of this guy. But Kata isn't really listening because he takes the big machete and slices. Isaac's face, and they're over a grassy cliff, and Isaac falls over. Uh, David sees all this, goes berserk, and just escapes. And later that night, we see him um, uh, get the drop on Kata as he's sleeping, kidnap him, and toss him to the camp of his enemy. Days later, he turns himself into a, a local um, a local orphanage full of refugees who've been boys like him who've been taken in and trained to be soldiers. And we first see how he meets. Um, how he meets uh, Matu. Uh, we see Matu a lot, yes, a lot younger, but still having a great fashion sense, and says that you know, even though there are more boys like him, he's the worst because he's the best at killing people. So the issue ends with Batwing determined to find the monster massacre because, as he says, 
only it takes a monster to find a monster. All right, Batwing number four. This was an interesting issue because we essentially learned the entire backstory of David Zabambi and uh, the person obviously behind the Batwing mask. And we didn't know anything about this character. We didn't know anything really about this character other than where the character was located ever since the beginning of the character appearing back in Batman Incorporated. So it's quite interesting to actually learn that this person not only was a um, child soldier in South Africa, but also a, a murderer, essentially, and a reformed murderer at that. Which leads me to wonder... I, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, there's not qualities that Batman would not appreciate, but at the same time, it seems a little interesting that a reformed murderer is who Batman recruits. I don't know Batman's entire intentions, and clearly the, the person ha is sorry for everything that they've done. Nonetheless, um, Ben Oliver obviously was absent from this issue. We had Chris Cross, who we last saw in the, um, I think it was a five-part story arc in Superman Batman featuring Batman and Superman from the future and slash past meeting each other, things like that. Um, his, his art's okay, it's just not as good as Ben Oliver. That's the problem. We're expected to see Ben Oliver in this issue and, you know, clearly Ben Oliver had to take a month off because his art is just that high quality that he needed the extra month to catch up. Um, the story overall, I think the backstory is interesting. Um, the one thing that I do want to know a little bit more about is they made a point to say that the brothers, while they're together, work a lot better. Now, yes, you're going to work better as a team, especially when you don't have to do as much towards the actual mission if you are working as a team. But it begs the question of, you know, uh, the the evil warlord was made a point to say that Oh, well, you know, these are the best. If they want to disappear, they'll disappear. Uh, you know, no one can track them, but they can track anybody they want. The thing about that is I have to really contemplate, is there something more to the character than he's just a normal person who has these skills? Because if he's just a normal person with these skills, where did he get these skills from? How did he learn how to be such an expert tracker and be able to track people and track large, you know, specific people that are hidden amongst a large groups of people so precisely if, uh, unless he has some kind of other skill that, or slash power that we're unaware of. And maybe it's not as, uh, useful now that his brother's not around. So that's something that I'm sure may or may not be played out into the future, but I, I'd be interested in finding out a little bit more about that. Overall, I thought this was a good issue. Three and a half out of five batteries. I think this was a good issue as well. However, I have a lot of problems with the writing, and it's really just kind of a personal preference thing. Um, this is not a bad issue. This is not a seriously flawed issue. Dustin does make a, bring up a good point, though, real quick, that, um, I mean, both David and Bruce Wayne are orphans, but because David grew up in, in the harsh realities of uh, modern-day Africa, it kind of it's, it's, it's a little too much to like say, oh, well, that's why... That's why he's such a good killer. That's why he's so good at what he does because he's African. I mean, that's kind of a, that's kind of a cop out answer and kind of a very lazy way to like just make it. And that's kind of my problem with like, I don't, Judd Winnick obviously wants to tell a really good, um, really down to earth, relatable story in terms of like reality and like how things are around the world. But a lot of times it comes off as very melodramatic. Um, and some of the, some of the scripting in this issue 
doesn't really help it a lot. There is a lot of exposition that's not very well handled in here. And it begins with a flashback where Kata starts narrating and with his uh, narration captions, and then we never hear from it again, especially if this is the story that is being a flashback from Batwing's perspective, and it ends with Batwing meeting uh, a Matau. Like, what, what what happened there? Like, like why was it... Why, why was... First of all, why was Kata thinking to himself about this kind of stuff? Like, you know, ten, uh, it's, it's only been one year since I started training David and Isaac Zimbabwe, and I, General Iota Kata, will train them to be wonderful warriors, and we will destroy my enemy... This guy, and, and it, it's very, very unrealistic, I think. It's very, very, um, it's kind of too convenient. It's kind of complacent. And it kind of dampened the issue in a way. I thought Criss Cross's art was pretty good, but I didn't like the scene where uh, Kay was beating on Isaac because I thought that looked overtly cartoonish, and it kind of um, dehumanized the characters a little bit. Otherwise, most of the issue I thought looked pretty good. It wasn't Ben Oliver's work, but it looked pretty... I, I, I just like the art style, but when David was crying and Isaac was getting beat on, it just looked really like uh, not even unpleasant. Just kind of, kind of looked like someone should have held him back or whatever. Especially when David like breaks free from the guards after Isaac falls, he's, he's like, Whoa! and it looks like he's trying. I don't know. It looks it looks too over the top. Overall, this issue is not bad, but it just it doesn't feel. I don't know. It, it kind of feels too too easy. Oh, David's a killer because he used to be a soldier and he's a. His parents died of AIDS. It feels very kind of, uh, I don't want to say cliche because it's not a story that's been done before, but it doesn't feel honest enough. It kind of just feels kind of thrown in there just because of the setting in Africa, 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 AIDS, 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 war, war, war. It doesn't feel like these people are actual characters, just kind of like assumptions of what Africa really is. I'm not saying that that's, that's wholly the case, but that's how it kind of came off. So I'll give this three out of five batterings. I totally get Don and Dustin's points. I think they're, they're good points about why he's uh, why he's so good. I like Dustin's idea of him maybe being a meta human. I'm not sure if that is the case. I, I don't think this is his entire origin. I think we're going to see more of it, so it's going to be interesting to see if anything like that plays out. I think I think when Dustin was calling him a murderer, I think that's a bit uh, a bit harsh in the fact that. Obviously, these kids are recruited as child soldiers. They don't actually get a choice. They get forced to get addicted to drugs and stuff like that, and then they're forced to fight. And, I mean, whilst you don't see all of that, because it is just a comic book to be read by pretty much everyone, I do like the fact that there are these sort of things like AIDS in there and, and war and these harsh realities that there are out there. I like seeing those real-world elements brought into it. I think they're really interesting to see and read about. But I think calling him a murderer is a bit harsh. But obviously, he's very—he wants he uh, obviously regrets all the stuff he's done, and he knows that he's good at it. I, I think it's, it is interesting to wonder why he is so good at it. Whether that's just convenience or if there's some something more there. But I, like I said, I think we're probably going to see probably going to see some more of that. But I do like the angle of how Batwing is trying to make up for these past sins. And it was great seeing a lot more of his origin in this issue. But um, whilst the artist obviously wasn't Ben Oliver, the colorist was still Brian Reber. So it was nice to have some consistency in it. And I, I think it was a bit of a shame that Chris Cross didn't even try to attempt to copy... Um, 
Ben Oliver's art style because I didn't mind so much in the flashbacks because you could I that's often a technique used having a different art style for different periods of time but in the present day it would have been nice to just see an attempted uh seeing that style emulated and um at times I feel the dialogue was a bit forced especially with like the relentless narration throughout but I still feel it all adds to the character who I think is written really well and I'm still interested in especially with these new elements now added into the history so I'm going to give this four out of five batterings well in the last hour you saw how I just totally went against Dustin and now I'm going to brown nose and say that I agree with Dustin um <laughs> Uh, especially, I guess, on the art point that, you know, oh, man, I really miss um, Ben Oliver's art. Uh, but, you know, if, if we were to see this particular artist, you know, once in a while, I think it would be fine. I think I would end up getting used to it and, and, and appreciating it more more down the road. But um, don't let it happen all the time, of course. I, I thought that the speech that Batwing makes outside of Dawnfire's residence a little strange and forced. It, it really seems dramatic, as if he were giving a monologue in some sort of Shakespearean play. Uh, you know, treat her with respect. I, it just seemed very out of left field. It was, it was strange. I do like the backstory that's given to us. We really see how close the two brothers were. Um, their sins, as well as, you know, certain beliefs that they really try to fight for, because obviously they're not necessarily good people, but um, they do have very particular standards for the people that they will kill. Uh, it, I think it makes readers want to care about the characters, even though they're not good. Uh, and, you know, in this book, particularly, good and bad is not necessarily a black and white distinction, which I really like. I think that this book does that well. I do like seeing David's change at the end of the backflash and seeing how he and Matu uh, meet each other. So that was great to pull Matu in there. And finally, I, I'm glad that we have learned more about David uh, without being distracted by another story. So now I'm just really looking forward to learning more about the kingdom and what that is. So I give this, I don't think it was as good as um, previous issues, but backstory history is really good, like Dustin has been saying all along. I give this 3.5 out of 5 batterings. All right, so out of a total of four reviews, that is going to give Batwing number four, total of three and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Detective Comics number four. Where are they? Batman Detective Comics number four, written and drawn by Tony Daniel. The issue starts 72 minutes in the past with Batman interrogating Raju, a messenger for the crime families of Gotham, in a way that a cliche high school bully would find amusing. To my understanding, the technical term is called a swirly. The interrogation summarizes how Batman knew where to find the Dollmaker. In the present, atop the GCPD HQ, Forbes is pressing for Batman to be tied to a cop's murder, but Bullock doesn't have any of it. Meanwhile, at the Dollmaker's hideout, Batman is strung up like a puppet being forced to fight the imposter Jokers, which he easily beats. Raju turns up with an offer from the Penguin who wants to buy Batman from the Dollmaker but Batman escapes from his bonds after discovering they are Wayne Tech. <sighs> Batman starts to fight his way through the thugs, just as Gordon, who is in the same building, is saved from being murdered by Olivia. A police helicopter turns up, which Batman believes has arrived to help, but as Batman chases after the car that, do 
the dog maker is escaping him, it explodes. Batman realizes that the car was just a distraction as the helicopter flies off, now with the doll maker as a passenger. We then cut to Colorado, where Bruce is on his date with Charlotte, before cutting back to the GCPD HQ, where Bullock is trying to stop Olivia being sent to Arkham, to be continued. Alright, Detective Comics number four. This was an interesting ending to the Dollmaker story arc. Um... Like I said earlier, this is one of the another one of the issues where somehow issue four seems to be the end of the first story arc. I, like I said earlier, this is, does not seem to be a coincidence, and uh, I'm sure we'll figure out why sometime in the future. All right, so on to this issue specifically, though. the The interesting thing about this is we we Tony Daniel has been doing this thing in the last couple issues where the cliffhanger is some you know huge cliffhanger. We have to wonder what's going to happen in the next issue, and what happens, we pick up issue number four, we open up the book, and wait, Batman's free. Regardless of it saying 72 minutes later, what was the point of a cliffhanger if the first couple pages of the next issue was going to take you back to the past? Did he run out of pages in the last book and decide to skip this sequence that felt so important, yet has no real meaning to the actual overall story? Um, why does Batman take out this, this, uh, messenger to, to the, the rich people of Gotham? Only to get some information that really is not that helpful, and then later on the character has no meaning other than to show up and say that he's gonna buy Batman. I, it just seemed useless. Why, what was even the point of including this character in the, in, in the issue? Um, let's see. We didn't really get anything further along with Charlotte Rivers. We do see that uh, Lieutenant Forbes, who has appeared numerous times in Batman the Dark Knight, is appearing in Detective Comics now as well, talking to Harvey Bullock. We also see that Harvey Bullock is actually defending Batman, which is interesting and nice to see. Um, this really wasn't that great. Um, basically, <laughs> the entire idea of, oh, they, they faked, they faked out, uh, driving away in a car with some mannequins. Really? Because that hasn't been done before? Uh, I don't know. It it just seems like this, this entire big story has really been just... Well, what I'm feeling it's going to be is it's going to be just this filler where they needed to have the Joker's face torn off to play into his a future storyline that D Daniel wants to do with a with an actual with the actual Joker, and everything leading up to that story is just going to have bits and pieces leading to that one story, and that's the whole point of what he's doing. Everything else is pointless, because as of right now, what was the point of the doll maker other than to say, hey, let's add the one gazillionth villain to Batman's rogues gallery, and by the way, he cuts the Joker's face off. The art was alright. I don't have any qualms about the art. Um... Although, we know that Tony Daniel is going to start, uh, everything's going to start to catch up with him very shortly, because we already know that there's an issue coming out in the future where he's not doing the art. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything, like, super wonderful to say about the issue, because, quite honestly, besides the Joker face in the police headquarters locked up, for some reason being frozen, don't understand why that is either, um... I will guess I, I guess I'll just have to wait and see what the Joker stuff is, but besides that, 
really is not that interesting. Two out of five batterings. Hey, what do you know? I agree with Dustin wholeheartedly. I just, the whole dollar maker thing never interested me. For, and then I, this story just feels, this. it feels wannabe. It feels wannabe to me. I know I said this in the last couple of issues, but yeah, it does. And it continues because Daniel's still writing, Daniel's still drawing. Batman's interpretation of this entire thing just bugs the crap out of me. I mean, it's it. when I say wannabe, I mean, they're really like, making him try to seem tough. And like the whole, did the first page really need to be a whole page splash? Like, you know, I like you, Rashu. That's why I'm being soft on you. What did you say? Like, ugh. I mean, okay. He's, he's, he's scary. He's intimidating. But he's giving a guy a swirly like he's Roger Klotz. I mean, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't really add anything to the story. Just like in The Dark Knight, how there was a full page splash of somebody falling on a car. That's not really worth that, that time. And to me, the, the whole book just feels like, I'm not going to say it's padded or decompressed, but it just feels like nothing much is going on. And because of that, like, it, it brings out the flaws in the dialogue and writing all the more. Like, when Gordon is, like, sitting up and talking to, uh, Olivia, he say, he says, you know, I know, sweetheart, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. Saving you from this beast is all I give a damn about right now. Okay. When you're writing somebody in a dire situation and you have them use, like, like any sort of, like, language, there's a certain tone that, that, that comes with that. And, it, it does depend on the, the character you're talking about, but in this case, Gordon's like very conscious, and he's talking to a child, and it just doesn't—they've just felt completely forced. I mean, like, there's, 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 there's using, there's using phrases like "give a damn," like you know, like I don't give a damn if it's raining or whatever, and then there's, there's phrases like you know, "I'm going to save you from this person, little girl." It feels like he's talking to somebody his own age group, and and like somebody who would know, as opposed to this this stranger little girl who may have or not been kidnapped. It just feels forced. Every single image of Batman has him gritting his teeth, like like he's the freaking Punisher. Although there are some nice poses of Batman here and there. Dollmaker doesn't interest me. The whole Joker thing was a complete, like distraction that that wasn't that wasn't important. I did like that they were bringing in Lieutenant Forbes from the Dark Knight because this shows continuity. But it, the story in itself, it was it was decent action, but it wasn't decent enough to really make me feel entertained by this issue. And Charlotte Rivers, I'm just counting down to, to the moment where she either dies, is written out of the books. Or is forgotten about because she's a blank slate of a character. The, the story wasn't bad, but it wasn't good. It was just it was it was very uninspired. Two out of five batterings. I quite like this issue overall. I really like the art a lot, particularly the splash page of the explosion. And I think a lot of the times Daniels draw Batman, I think he he does draw a good Batman. Uh, I also thought it seemed like we got a lot of the elements, like the plot elements in this book, which was good. We got uh, Charlotte Rivers, we got the Joker's missing face, we got a possible reference to issue two with the idea of an insider at Wayne Enterprises. And I also think that we're seeing a lot more cohesion now with some of the other Bat titles, like uh, Batman working with Bullock and their relationship and seeing Forbes as well from The Dark Knight. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. <sighs> okay, yeah, I do not like the beginning and, and mainly going along with you know what Dustin was saying because it doesn't really tie that directly with the previous issue. Um, you know, had this scene where Batman is interrogating Raju or, yeah, whatever, uh, occurred at the end of number three and then Batman was captured 
And then it ended with him in the cage with the puppet strings. And this issue could have certainly started with the cage match and seemed more flowing. But as it is right now, it is really disorienting and it's tough to figure out what had happened and there's just a gap of time. And I guess it's all resolved, but I, I don't think in the way that it should have been. I just think that uh, this intro scene's only purpose really is to introduce Raju for later in the issue, because obviously he has a purpose later on. I can't really get a bead on whether Olivia is evil, uh, like the, the, the bad seed. I don't know if any of you young folks have seen that movie. Or, you know, it's just slightly messed up. I think it goes back and forth each issue, and I'm getting messed up just trying to think about it. Every other scene, it seems like she is about to kill the commissioner, and it's it's just getting a little old. I mean, can't we lock down one characterization? It was naive of me to think that the doll maker could be captured so easily. Um, I was quite surprised by the LMDs for non-Marvel Lights life model decoys and uh, the explosion. So I guess bravo uh, to you, the writer, for being able to throw me off the track. Now let's let's take a break and talk about shippers. For a <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, but it was just it was a surprise to see Bruce and Charlotte in Colorado on a short vacay, especially with all that's going on in this storyline. I mean, I feel like this is a good indicator that this could be a serious relationship. I mean, because he takes a break. He doesn't really take a break from Batman all that often, so it seems like this is a kind of step back and look at this kind of thing. Or it's completely out of character. Whoa! Can he be romantic, Dustin? <laughs> okay, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Just because Dustin fancies Jay from The Dark Knight a bit more. That's true. No, I said White Rabbit, not Jay. <laughs> <laughs> there is a distinct difference. There is a difference. distinct difference, yes. Yeah. Um,. But, you know, this may be a crazy thought, but I actually wonder if Charlotte is the blonde assistant to Dollface. I don't know. Do you know which one I'm talking about? She's got a weird mm-hmm. face. Okay. I don't know if that, that could be a crazy thought. Okay, the Joker's face returns. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we have seen it last, and it's interesting to hear what sort of an uproar it's causing, but who knows really what it's being used for. And, you, you know, this reminds me of that movie, um, Pulp Fiction. And the briefcase, and, you know, everyone wonders what is in the briefcase. And what kind of device is that known as, Donovan? MacGuffin. A MacGuffin. I just wonder if this is a MacGuffin. Maybe it doesn't fit exactly, but I just thought I had that thought. Finally, you know, I think that this issue probably was a little better than we have seen. Um, Maybe a little bit, but there still seems to be little things here and there that just don't work. I originally had a 3.8 out of 5 batterings. (laughs) I didn't know if that would be allowed, but I kind of knocked it down after hearing other people's thoughts and and, and agreeing with those. So I'll give it a 3 out of 5 batterings. Yeah, 3.8. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're fired. Oh. All right, so out of four reviews, that is going to give Detective Comics number four a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Penguin, Pain and Prejudice number three. A penguin is a bird that cannot fly. I am a man. I have a name. Oswald Cobblepot. Written by Greg Hurwitz, art by Seisman Kudransky. The issue starts off with basically um, Oswald making making arrangements for his mother who has passed away. 
we focus in on two characters. One who is the EMT who basically makes a smart remark to um, Oswald about, uh, well, his mother's dead, deal with it. And then we see somebody else in the background who's crying. We skip ahead and uh, we essentially realize that uh, Oswald is now going to have these two people taken to him uh, regardless. He also says that he's looking for something special and the his his cronies, as we've seen in the last couple of issues, have actually uh, brought him the earrings that he asked for from that rock star's ears after they yanked them off. Uh, Oswald decides to take a visit to the zoo. While he's there, he meets a blind woman who can appreciate him for somebody more than what his, uh, than his ugly looks or his rich pocket book can do. So, uh, he brings her home, treats her to dinner. Basically, uh, I don't know the best way to put this, but uh, I don't know any other way of putting it, but he kind of imprisons her. Um, after heading down, after excusing himself from the dinner table because he has some business to attend to, he heads down to those, uh, dark rooms in the basement of the Iceberg Lounge, and once again we run into the Joker, who is now uh, throwing knives at uh, a, what appears to be a midget with a ball in his throat. Very different than the uh, the goat from the last episode, or the last issue. Uh, we then run into these two people, the EMT and the uh, the, the other the woman. Uh, it turns out the woman was actually the secretary or assistant to his mother. And he basically is trying to make her life as rich as possible for all that she's done and the genuine, uh, the genuine grief that she has for his mother passing. The EMT, on the other hand, he decides to make his life a living hell and, uh, decides to tell him that pretty much everybody in his family is being murdered, his house is being blown up. Uh, you know, similar to what happened in that first issue of this series. Um, what's very interesting is after he tells the woman everything that she, she's going to, he, she's going to get, she basically says, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm very glad that you want to do all this, but I don't need any of those things. I just, I just loved your mother and, uh, love doesn't require any payment. So it proves that, you know, good people really are really good and bad people, well, they end up in a pile of their own puke. Um, Cutting back to the blind woman, she has now moved into a bedroom where I guess she is now going to be staying at. He, he gives her a foot massage as Batman watches in. We cut to the funeral where Penguin has given the earrings to his mother and we see a little bit of a flashback of him knowing that uh, his mother believes that he's very special. He gets pretty upset by this and uh, per, and, and pretty much demolishes his, uh, his, his one of his his father's slash brother's uh, markings in the Malseum. And uh, that leads to the henchmen who are being told by Penguin to get something. turns out that what he wants is this ginormous ring. The cronies get the ring. He gives it to the blind woman. And uh, Batman is convinced that he is going to find out exactly who did this. And uh, he f goes back to the Batcave only to find out that the cronies are attached to none other than the Penguin. That is the end of issue three. All right, Penguin Pain and Prejudice number three. Again, interesting issue. I love the art. Uh, the story is interesting because, like I've said, and I'm just going to continue to say this until I get blindsided by uh, uh, something I did not see coming, um, this is a great story, and this is going to probably most likely become the Penguin story for 
the Batman universe. Joker has the killing joke, the man who laughs. Uh, you could even consider some other stories that he's had, such as, uh, his, his part in Mad Love or the Laughing Fish storyline, things like that. You could consider some of those stories Joker stories. But really, besides the Penguin Affair, there really hasn't been a Penguin story, and the Penguin Affair is on the same lines of the Laughing Fish for the Joker. It's not an amazing story. And I'm not saying that this is an amazing story, but it's definitely building the entire character of the Penguin into a specific light. The question is, do you see the Penguin as a bad person or a good person? Does he just reward those who are good and punish those who are mean and, and unjust? That's the question that, that you're really left with. Do you, do you actually feel sympathy or pity for the penguin? Or do you feel like what he's doing is wrong? And that's what's interesting to me about this issue. The history, of course, is interesting. But what's interesting is that the entire series is painting a picture that you have to decide which side are you going to be on. Are you going to be on the generic, yes, penguin is a horrible person. Yes, you know, no wonder he's so bad and Batman's always trying to catch him. Or is it really, you know, does he actually have motives behind everything that he does? And when he's really bad, it's because he has specific motives that, you know, could be construed as, you know, positive for somebody. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I, I think it might actually take to the end of the series to figure that out. But overall, I, I, I like the idea of, you know, having to figure out whether or not the character is a good character or a bad character. Yes, the character is most likely a bad character, but I like the way, I like how we're seeing from the other side of the glass. We're not seeing the generic, yes, this person's bad, and yes, they're trying to do something bad, and Batman tries to stop them. We're seeing it from the completely other side, and I, I, I'm enjoying it. Four out of five bad rings. I actually did like this issue the best out of the miniseries. Um, I'm still not loving it as much as Dustin is, but it's not a bad series. I, I, I still kind of feel that it's, it's, um, I don't want to come off as too harsh on it, but it's, it's not, it doesn't feel wholly original in me. I mean, that doesn't, uh, puts up the idea that, like, it kind of leaves the reader to decide whether Penguin is all good or all bad. I mean, I think he's just a really, really disgusting person who's made sympathetic by his interaction with other people. And I mean, we, we kind of seen that, that, that Penguin before. I know we've definitely seen him in BTAS, but barring that, it's not so much that it's not wholly, uh, Original or may or may not be, but I don't know. I mean, I don't feel the penguin here is given enough sympathy in my, at least, at least in my reading to really invest me in his character. I mean, we understand why he's doing what he's doing. Um, he's not somebody who just, who just, you know, sees good people and destroys their lives. You know, he embraces good people. He likes good people. But at the same time, that doesn't make him, that doesn't, that, that doesn't excuse his actions. You know, I mean, he, he kind of, he kind of just butchered those two people at the end in the car. Just so he wanted the diamond ring. That's like that's like one of the lowest things you could possibly do. Um, I did find it interesting how how the scene between like the EMT and like the uh, his mother's therapist or whatever was juxtaposed. How he was destroying one person's life and uh, lavishing another person's life. Um, I found the the whole thing with the blind woman kind of funny <laughs> because it's like, oh, you're the only one who's never uh, 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 just talk to me about me with my, about my parents. Well, obviously. And, but I did find that interesting because Penguin would go for a woman who can't see what he looks like. I thought that was a pretty nice way to show what kind of person he is. Um, there were a couple of things I didn't get because of the art. 
like on page six when Penguin is like scaring away the kids at the zoo, what exactly is he doing? I mean, is he is he a magic guy? Does he pull snakes out of his hat or whatever? I, I really didn't understand what's going on there. It was an umbrella. He, he had an umbrella. Yeah. Nothing scarier than an umbrella. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, well, there's that. But I mean, like, and the, and the ending I thought wasn't. It wasn't a bad ending, but like I was like, really, it kind of ends there because it's like, Batman's on the case. <gasps> he finds out it's the Penguin. Batman's going to stop the Penguin. I mean, that's kind of like, I mean, we kind of expect it to happen. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was bad, but it was just like, it was kind of a limp ending in my opinion. But I mean, it it, it is what it is, and this, this issue in this miniseries is what it is. I'll give it two and a half out of five batterings. This series continues to blow me away. I really, really like it. I thought when it started out, it was a little bit off, and I was wondering, for, like, just a couple of small things. I was wondering why the ambulance driver was so disrespectful. I mean, especially if it was a penguin. I mean, you know he's supposed to be, like, this crime lord, and then he's just like, oh, yeah, your mum's dead. And then Cassandra, when she has a, makes those constant whispers at, towards the beginning of the book, but they quickly stopped, and... Then I fell in love with the issue. I think the art is amazing, and that first shot of Batman when he's outside the window was one of the best shots of the character I've ever seen. If they made that into a statue, I would sell my major organs to make sure I could afford it. Because it was really... <laughs> I, thought, I thought the inclusion of the Joker again was absolutely hilarious. And I continue to believe that this is the best interpretation of the Penguin that I've ever read. And I really hope that this is the Penguin that we're going to continue to see throughout the comics from now on. I'm going to give this 5 out of 5 batterings. So if Donovan and me are Stelvin, then Dustin and Joe would be Dusto. Um, <laughs> I know that's going to be cut out. I know. Justin. Oh, it, oh, but that, I don't know if anyone would recognize Justin. that. Joseph. Yeah, we could do that. Um, oh, I ju- just because, like, the two of you always agree, and then Dustin always agree, it, it always happens yeah. that way. Anyway. <laughs> okay, sorry. You're just looking for shippers. That's all you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all around us. Okay. D- yeah, let's see. Um, I guess I'll start with the art. Uh, I, I think that it still has its confusing moments. In particular, with this issue is the panel where Penguin scares the kids away from the zoo. I mean, exactly what is happening. And then we actually learn about what happened to Penguin's father from last issue. Apparently, he died of pneumonia. But this does not really answer the question of what was put in his father's burger. I don't know if that bothered any of you. Uh, what I did, however, enjoy about the art, you know, such a small detail, is that when something bad or fatal is happening to someone, the outline of the panel is in an etched red, uh, whereas something else would be just, just the plain uh, normal detail. And I just thought that was kind of powerful in, in however small the detail that was. The Joker appearances, how random are those? And they really have no point. We had him cross-dressing in the previous issue, and then in this issue... He's throwing knives at a guy spinning on a board. I, I just don't understand what's going on with that. I do like that there is a reason for Penguin and his umbrella. I don't know if that's ever been explained. I guess I don't know too much about the Penguin character, but I thought that was pretty cool. I don't really like Batman watching Penguin with Cassandra uh, through the window. It kind of reminds me of a particular fan fiction that I read once. Oh, my God. Don't even talk about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Donovan knows which one that is. I feel like the uh, relationship between Oswald and Cassandra, though I feel like it develops a little too quickly, and I find Cassandra's side comments annoying, uh, you know, even though I can tell that they're cute. Uh, I, I do think it's a good relationship. Um, I don't know if it's too cliche, but, you know, it is nice to have someone uh, be there for for this character and like Dustin said kind of makes us sympathetic for the character whereas perhaps before we just thought he was a joke um, I, I do like this issue a little better than the previous two but I still want to know what the main purpose of the story actually is is it to show the struggles of the penguin to make him a, a, a sympathetic character I, I don't really know but I think that you know now his backstory is is done that we're going to have more fluidity with the issues and they're, they're going to be better to the end. So 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Alright, so out of 4 reviews, that gives Penguin, Pain and Prejudice, number 3, a total of 3.5 out of 5 batterings. Let's move into our next issue, Batwoman, number 4. I'll have what she's having. Batwoman, number 4. Written by J.H. Williams III and W. Hayden Blackman. Illustrated by J.H. Williams III. This issue starts off uh, as a story of, of two women, or maybe three. Uh, one is Betty Kane, also known as Flamebird. The other is uh, Kate Kane, known as Batwoman. And they're having two different experiences. Flamebird is rushing into the streets and fighting off gangsters, while Cat. <laughs> trying to phrase this. While um, Batwoman is rushing into bed with. Baggy Sawyer, as we saw last issue. And the scene pretty much shows simultaneously what's going on with Maggie and Kate embracing and uh, while Betty is fighting um, a bunch of these gangsters. She runs into, or she is set upon um, the Weeping Woman and then we see this sort of Solomon Grundy type character with a hook for a hand. Um, I may have missed something, but that, that's, that's, what, that's what happens. And he's sort of like a Frankenstein kind of character. And as he takes on uh, Flamebird, we see it gets a lot more violent as uh, Maggie and Kate's tryst is getting more and more exciting. At one point, Flamebird actually gets run through by the hook. And as she lays there, uh, presumably dying, there is a crescendo at the love scene with uh, Batwoman. After all that, we see that Flamebird is uh, found out by Agent, Agent Chase and is taken into her custody while Batwoman investigates uh, the, the dying children of the Weeping Woman and uh, tries to investigate the man's father, we see that Agent Chase and her cronies are um, connecting Flamebird with the other Bat family on, on a sort of graph. We see Red Robin, Robin, Nightwing, Batwoman, Batman, and um, Batman Incorporated is, is mentioned. And when Betty is like on her hospital bed, they're told that, oh, your injuries are too extensive. There's nothing we can do to save you. Uh, we, need to, we need to know your next of kin. Tell us who can we contact. Um, and so she says, Kay Kane. So Agent Chase is like, ha, 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 sucker. So they uh, figure out this will lead her to Batwoman. While Batwoman is investigating uh, the dead girl Maria's father, um, we see that Agent Chase is meeting up with Director Bones saying that they just unmasked one of Batman's quote-unquote shadow soldiers, and he says there's no way I'm missing what comes next to be continued. All right, Batwoman number four. This was an interesting issue because I guess 
the worst of what could have happened happened. Kate Kane tells Flamebird, "Don't be Flamebird anymore. I'm not training you. You're on your. You, you can't do this. Uh, I don't want to risk you getting hurt." And what happens? Flamebird goes out, gets hurt, almost dies, and then because of course, you know, Murphy's Law comes into effect when all else, when all is going bad, more bad will happen. Uh, the DEO show up and basically take Flamebird in, trick her into giving away the the uh, the secret identity of uh, Batwoman, and uh, yeah. Now they didn't generally they didn't actually give away she didn't actually give away the the identity, but the fact that she says, "Oh, I'm related to Kate Kane," yes, that is not a that it, there's certainly that is certainly not a coincidence. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Um, I'm interested to see what actually happens with Flamebird because for a bunch of times they've actually said that she's going to die. She's going to die in the issue. Now, whether or not they were saying this just to, you know, to kind of drill the seriousness of what was going on into F- F- Betty's head so that she would actually give up what she, you know, what the information that they wanted was. But then they also made the comment after they got the information about, well, we better get her to the hospital because she's not going to survive staying here. I'm curious of why they were they were willing to risk this character dying, or, well, not character, this person dying, just to know the identity of Batwoman, even though Batwoman hasn't actually done anything wrong. Now, I know a lot of people out there don't understand the actual idea of the DEO, and I know a lot of people, I've read some things online saying that the, yeah, Dr. Bones or whatever, Mr. Bones or whatever his name is, he's not actually a bad guy, he's just part of some organization that's seeking to find out specific information. It's a government organization, it's not, it's not Checkmate, for those of you who even know what Checkmate is, it's not you know, an organization out there that's out doing out to do nothing but to destroy Batman. It's an organization that has a lot of ties to the Batman universe in in the past in trying to find out every bit of information they can about Batman. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Everything that's going on with Kate Kane, that uh you know it's nice to see her relationship with Maggie going on. I don't know that we needed to see you know, in the middle of Flamebird being beaten up and slashed and being bloody, I don't know that every other panel needed to be a black and white pencil sketch of Maggie and Kate in bed together. I just, I think that was weird placement, in my opinion, just very odd placement. We're getting someone, like, basically it's, you know, the, the perfect combination of sex and violence because mm-hmm. one violence is on one, pa- on one panel and the next panel is sex. So I mean, that to me just was very odd, and I'm not and I'm not saying that because it was two girls or or is because it's a because they're lesbians. It has nothing to do with that. It's just it's a very odd placement to have the sex happening right next to the violence, especially if the character did end up dying. It would be even weirder. So yeah, <laughs> um, sorry. It so yeah, I. I, I don't even know how to address that other than what I just said. I mean, the art was great. I have nothing against the art, and the story is interesting. I'm interested to see where it's going, but at the same point, it seems like we're really starting to get away from the Kate Kane that we learned about initially when she was in Detective Comics. 
where, you know, she was with her father. Her father was kind of her command central, running her command central. And now she's out on her own, and it's really not focusing a whole lot on her actually taking care of anything. There's the whole story with the the, the woman who's kidnapping the children, but that's it's 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 like a like a side story to the relationship and the stuff going on with Betty right now. So I I, I don't know. I it's hard to say. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm loving Batwoman. I I I love the art and I think what they're doing is great. It's just it just seems like we're starting to drift further away from what Batwoman initially was, and that worries me because I don't want us to drift too far away and get too stuck up on her her relationship with Maggie, uh, everything going on with uh, Betty, those kind of things. So, good issue, just I, I don't want it to drift any further away. Three and a half out of five batteries. Now, uh, was Agent Chase in the detective run? She was, right? Yes. I'm, I, I just thought about this. Is she, is there, have you ever suggested that she might be related to uh, the vigilante? Because his name was Adrian Chase, and I thought that he worked with the DEO as well. He's sort of like an old Bronze Age character. I'm just curious. Not that I'm aware of. I did know of that. I did know of the character, but I I don't think I've ever seen anything tying those two together. Okay, I'm just I'm just saying like it it would be it would be an interesting coincidence if that weren't the case because I was huh yeah um okay this issue um I like this issue <laughs> the the very beginning really kind of made me um. Uh, kind of question myself. <laughs> well, let me explain. Because I actually think it's a very uh, interesting and interesting idea just to juxtapose two different scenes of the Canes uh, in two di- very different uh, situations. I was trying the entire time when I was reading the first several pages to say, why, don't, why am I not as disgusted as I was when I read the end of Catwoman number one? Because while initially the love scene between Maggie and Kate isn't all that explicit, they're just kind of like making out uh, on the bed. I mean, you can kind of figure out what's going on, but it's not too explicit. It's up to Dustin whether he's going to cut this out or not. But like when it gets to the point where it, they show you exactly what's going, what's happening in that scene with Kate, like moving down or Maggie moving down Kate's body. Oh my gosh. And, <laughs> and then Kate legitimately like, uh, the point is that it got pretty graphic. I'm not honestly graphic, but it got pretty explicit at the end. But I don't mind it, and I'm, I'm wondering why. And it can't just because it can't just be because I'm a straight guy, who um, the, the side of lesbianism does does anything but bother me. I don't think that's the case. I mean, but I'm not. I'm not actually figured it out. I did think it was interesting in the lettering how every time Kate or Betty was like, "Er, ah," oh, it would be right next to a panel of uh, Kate writhing in bed. But uh, okay, that's enough of that. Um, J.H. Williams and, and um, Hayden Blackman must hate the character of Flamebird because they treat her so horribly in this title. When I saw the beginning, I was like, God, I, it, it never struck me until this issue that they must really despise her. Now, granted, she's kind of a silly character that that um, was brought in at, uh, for a very silly reason back in the Silver Age. But since then, I mean, especially in this title, she's gotten crapped on a lot. And I don't really have any love for the character myself, but it's almost become like, uh, transparent in the writing, like how just how crappy they treat her. I mean, she really isn't. She's not. She's not on the on the same level as let's say Nightwing in terms of effectiveness. But she's not. I, I thought she kind of if she if she is going to die, I thought she kind of deserved better than this at least a little bit. I mean, not only not only is she like kind of like uh, curb stomped 
in the streets, but she's tricked into like possibly uh, giving up the identities of Batwoman and possibly even Batman. I mean, that's that's pretty bad. That's like that's like Watchmen level like depressing in terms of like what how a superhero ends up. Now I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's just a, it's just a, a, an apparent thing. And I thought it was I thought it, it made for a very interesting story. But I was like, oh man, that, that, that sucks. Anyway, I enjoyed this issue. Um, uh, pretty sexy issue, if, if I must say. But it was on the good side of sexy, in my opinion. Four out of five betterings. I know uh, Dustin won't like this. But I can barely put into words how much I like this book, so I'll just settle for one word, and that is perfect, and give it five out of five batterings, and that's all I'm going to say. Well, what was interesting, I guess, first of all, is Chase, I thought, oh, this must be her first, you know, appearance, oh, this DEO business, and, you know, Bones, oh, these are interesting people, but now that I'm reading Young Justice, I actually find, you know, there is a past with DEO um, as an organization, Bones and Chase, so that was just like a little aside that I'm learning more about them through other comics. Let's see, a little more becomes clearer in the case of the Weeping Woman, and I really like the tragic direction that it's going, however awful that sounds, but just, uh, you know, this idea of, of the, the mother and being, well, as Josh would say, kind of like the mother and Air Bud, actually, right? Not taking care of her, of her kids, potentially. Um, in the short amount of time that I, I have gotten to know Flamebird, I've really started to care for her. So her beating is, is really tough to swallow. Um, <clears throat> at least she fights back on like Catwoman number two, was it? I figured something, something like this was going to happen with the way the last issue ended. And I wonder what the future holds for her and Kate. And more than that, I, I you know, what does the future hold? for Kate with her identity at stake. I love seeing Kate using her detective skills. That's, you know, I never um, will not like that. I think that's always great to see how the different people get the information. So let's, let's, uh, let's talk about this opening scene here, shall we? Since I'm the only girl on the podcast, I'm sure everyone is wondering what I'm going to say. I have many levels of thoughts and feelings to this, uh, kind of like Don, you know, kind of sitting there wondering. So scenes like this generally make me uncomfortable. To frame this for you, rented Black Swan, kind of had to fast forward through that one scene, just couldn't really take it. So that's my... F- why are you laughing? <laughs> what, what, why is that? I'm not, I'm not seeing Black Swan, but my brother saw it and told me what happened, so that makes me laugh. I mean, it's a good movie. I just, that one particular scene. Uh, so that's my first layer. So the second layer, I still find this scene just like Donovan, okay? Stellavan to the rescue. Less obscene than the Catwoman sex scene. Mainly because, you know, it's really connecting back to the last issue, uh, where, you know, there's actually some emotion between the characters rather than just raw sex that was happening for just some sort of random reason in Catwoman. So I appreciate that. Layer three. The love scene, I think, does go on for far too long, and it seems like it probably could have ended on page two when Maggie, uh, okay. Descended. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to. When she, when she arrived. Yeah, there you go. Basically, that's like that's probably when she started kissing her belly. Like, if you would have ended the scene right there, I think that would have been fine. Like, the imaginations could have gone wild, but nothing would have been on page. 
but my fourth layer, and I guess this is something that Dustin really didn't like as much. Um, I really actually like the juxtaposition of pain um, with pleasure. You know, we really see the pain of, I like to call her Bet. I guess it is Betty, but I know sometimes in different medium it's, it's, it's Bet. Uh, and then the pleasure of Kate. I just think that um, it really goes together. However, and, and I mean, it is really... It's powerful. So you, it's disturbing all at the same time. But I think so it, you it like goes, the uh, the juxtaposition oh in this book, but in Catwoman, when it's rolled into one, you're like, <laughs> oh hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So see, it it doesn't necessarily make sense as you know, as Donovan said, like, why are we fine with this particular scene and not with Catwoman? And I mean, perhaps it's because I've really fallen in love with the the character of uh, of Kate. But, you know, I like Selena, too. So it is really tough. But overall, I mean, this is a great book. It is really one of my favorites. And I don't think I really would have seen that coming at all. But I give this uh, four out of five batterings. All right. So out of four reviews, Batwoman number four gets a total of four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Huntress number three. I've changed some since we met last, but you haven't changed. All these years you've been building your empire with thievery and murder. But it ends tonight. Okay. Huntress number three of six, part three, Crossbow at the Crossroads. Writer Paul Levitz, penciler Marcus Toe, inker John Dell, and colorist Andrew Dollhouse. The issue opens with Moretti's yacht, Doc docking at a harbor as Huntress looks on. Nearly ready to take a shot, she is shocked to see the Polizia arrive, not to clean up, but to assist Moretti. The officers take posts around the yacht while some go inside to relax. Huntress knocks some outside guards out and makes her way onto the yacht in order to spy. She learns that Moretti is escorting Ibn Hassan around Pompeii. They are surveying it in advance of the chairman's meeting with diplomats of Itty. Helena then calls her reporter friend, Alessandro, don't call my name, don't call my name, Alessandro, and learns that the the chairman is from Kufra and is seeking asylum. His son, Ibn Hassan, is also known as Mustafa, not Mufasa, and is a morally shady character as well. Helena makes her way to Pompeii, spies on the setup for the meeting at the Theater of Pompeii, changes into her Huntress garb, and begins taking out the guards one by one. Mustafa and Moretti leave, and Huntress only has to take down the lion. Back at the yacht, Moretti continues with the planned meeting and asks Mustafa to delight in one of the women. As the setting changes to war-torn Kufra, the chairman explains his plans to his advisors, looks upon some girls, new girls that he will send to Moretti, and plans on breaking them in before sending them. Back at the Theater of Pompeii, Huntress is having a rough go of things with the lion and loses her crossbow and her footing. She's able to recover, gives him a love tap of the Shiva kind, wipes the dirt off, and vows to take Moretti down next. Huntress number three. This was an interesting issue. I, I continue to like Marcus Toe's art. And I, I'm going to speak a little bit more about the art this issue, uh, more so than the story, because the story just is continuing on. And quite honestly, it's not so much that it's filler. They're continuing at a good pace. It's really just, there's not a whole lot to talk about because there's not, to, at least to me, there's not a lot that actually happens in this, this, this issue. Um, the art, on the other hand, is something I do want to talk about. 
Marcus Toe has been an artist that I've really liked for a very long time, ever since, well, I first saw his art with Red Robin, and I appreciate his art there. But one thing that I really want to give him credit for is the way he draws women. And I've said this before, and I'm focusing more on this issue because, you know, there's there's a line that I think comic books have. It's the line between sexy and cheesecake. And the sexy part is it looks good, but it's not... It's not over the top. It's not we're, we're purposely getting to the point where we're doing this so that we can draw women in these weird positions. Marcus Toe has, I never really saw it that often or really at all in Red Robin. But with the Huntress, his art is really good with the Huntress. And I wish that he would be a, a regular artist on a, a book that features a female main character, such as Batgirl. Maybe not Batgirl, but... Because I don't want, I wouldn't want him teamed with Gail Simone, because that might corrupt him. <laughs> um, but uh, maybe maybe Birds of Prey or something like that, where he can draw females and make them look really sexy, but not you know over the top cheesecake. Um, you know, there there was that little bit in Huntress where she has to change her clothes real quick. And, you know, that's not something that you would normally just see, but it, it, it's that it's on that side of sexy. It's not cheesecake. It's not over the top. It's not unnecessary. Well, I, I guess it could be classified as unnecessary because you don't have to draw that panel. But it's it makes it so that the character is sexy without being overtly sexy. And I appreciate that. Um, I, I like the idea. I like where this series is going. Um I really just wish you would get there a little bit quicker. I'm this 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 mini series has six issues, and I'm starting to feel as if I'm I'm already with issue three, starting to feel like it could have been condensed as you know maybe a few less issues, maybe one or two less issues, just because I feel like there's not a whole lot going on, and there's a lot of excess, like Huntress having to talk to the uh, the inspector. And then there's all of this other stuff going on. It just seems like, let's get to the main mission. We don't need all of these other things. Now we've got this other guy, um, from the Arab nation who's, you know, working with the person that Huntress is trying to take down. It's just, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I just feel like it's really unnecessary. Get to the main point. Get to the reason of why she got, or why she came to Italy. Because, I don't know. It just, it seems like we're, we're getting, we're getting off course so that we can we can make sure that there's an actual six issues. I could be wrong once issue four comes out and we start to see all the ties and how it all connects, but I would not be surprised if we don't. But overall, I thought this was a good issue. Three out of five batterings. I think Dustin uh, either stole what I was going to say or I've been rubbing off him a lot. Um, a lot with the art, I was I agree with wholeheartedly. Marcus Toe is not only a brilliant artist, but he's like... He's what comics need right now. You know, he can draw um, beautiful-looking women with the best of them, but he doesn't ever get where it's exploitative. He, he doesn't ever get to where the women are positioned or, or posed or moving unnaturalistically. And, I mean, Helena's always been a beautiful character, but it's not gleamed upon. It's not That's not made to be the point of the panels whenever you see it. I mean, even, even that scene where she's, like, kind of changing into her costume, it shows that she's about to become Huntress. I mean... Yeah, her shirt could not have been open or whatever, but at the same time, it's almost like blinking you miss it in terms of the comic book pacing. And I agree with Dustin wholeheartedly again. Um, I thought it's a perfect mix. The story, 
I thought was fine. I mean, I, I also agree that uh, it could be moving a little faster. I like the fight scene at the end. But, um, I mean, like, this we're, half, we're at the halfway point, so things might, might uh, speed up a little bit. But, I mean, I was, I was enjoying this. Um, give it three and a half out of five. Iron. In this issue, I started to get a bit bored with this storyline. I, I think I said all the way through that it feels a bit pointless other than establishing Helena as a uh, a viable character in the new universe and that's I mean that's reason enough to have her but I don't think it deserves a whole series to do that and I think this is not padded just very drawn out and I think it could have been a lot more condensed and I think then the pacing would be better because like I said I'm starting to get a bit bored and I, things have started happening where I'm not sure if they're for the plot or if it's just something more happening just to fill some pages. The art is very good, and I think the characters are written well. It's just... I think I've gone off this series a bit. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just... Maybe it's just not really for me. I'm not overly interested in the Huntress as a character, and whilst I was at the beginning of the series, this has not put me off. I just realised that I think it might have been a bit of hype around that first issue. So I'm going to give this a middle of the road two and a half out of five batterings. Let's see. I, I guess overall this issue, I don't think it was as good as the previous ones because I've certainly been loving this series, but this issue was not as straightforward or, in my opinion, easy to follow, especially the beginning, uh, as the others. You know, the exposition involving the chairman and his son seemed like a lot of information thrown at us really quickly, and it, it really took me a couple of read-throughs just to completely understand, and I think the main blocking point was that Ibn Hassan and Mustafa are the same person. So that was like the once I got over that I was I was able to understand. I continue to enjoy seeing the relationship with Huntress and Alessandro. Uh, this time with Alessandro acting as a male oracle for Huntress. Um, hipper say in pig Latin. Uh, and maybe the first time that I may have commented on it, but I love the setting of the book. Uh, you know, I'm a Latin teacher. Italy really resounds with me. It's especially great to see Pompeii in a book. And let me tell you how right it is that there are dogs in the street because there are dogs everywhere in Pompeii. And it was great to see the theater of Pompeii brought in. And it's just really clear that the writer and the artist did do research. So thank you very much. But oh my gosh, will anyone else say it? Why are they destroying a piece of ancient history? Man, they're just going buck wild on those uh, those ruins there. <laughs> um, I know. I liked finally seeing Huntress in action. Um, I feel like she's only punched maybe here and there in the first two issues, taking some minor guards down. But, you know, this, I think we really get to see her fighting skills and her brains as well and, and just try different things with this this huge guy coming after her. I'm not really sure what to think of this new antagonist introduced. You know, we knew there was someone more important than Moretti, but I wonder if this is a little too much. Could we not have stayed in Italy and kept it simpler than adding political intrigue to the mix? You know, the Italian state, as we see it in this book, has certainly more to worry about, uh, you know, with corruption, among other things. So is this too much for this series to handle? I give this three and a half cannolis out of five. No, I give this three and a half. Long <laughs> <laughs> show. I know, right? Three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so out of four reviews, that is going to give The Huntress number three a total of Three out of five batterings. 
So that is all of our comic book reviews. Let's uh, throw over Nick with Bad Books for Beginners. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick and today I'm looking at a book called Robin Flying Solo. Now this episode will cover the issues of the Robin series, 1 through to 5. It's written by Chuck Dixon who helmed and created this comic series and wrote for it for a very long time and kept it alive and made it interesting. Uh, the art's by Tom Grummet, who I'm not very familiar with, but he's worked on Superman and Wonder Woman on other DC projects, and he worked on the initial books in this Robin series, so he helped it get started. Now, the first issue came out in November 1993, and the plot picks up from where we last left Robin. He escaped from the... Uh, Jean-Paul Valley Batman who had a bit of a nervous breakdown and Robin fled the Batcave in his new car, the Red Bull. So let's see how Robin is getting on flying solo. Robin. Boy wonder. Come on, no! Death defying. Now! Master hacker. Hack motion sensors. Whoa. Same system as the bat cave. Combat ready. Switch your ride to battle mode. Got it? Got it. So Robin returns to his house after escaping the bat cave uh, with the red bird. He hides the car near his house and then he starts school the next day. He later has a date with Ariana, his new girlfriend, at the school dance, and a few teenage romance plots begin to develop. Tim begins investigating a car theft group who turn up at the dance and steal the most expensive cars. Robin goes out in the Redbird later, but is rammed off the road by the local sheriff who calls himself Shotgun. Uh, he presumes that by Robin's car and the fact that he was speeding, that he is part of the gang known only as the Speed Boys. Robin's unable to explain to Shotgun that he's not involved with the Speed Boys, so he makes a quick escape. Robin then tracks down the gang and defeats them, telling Shotgun where he can round the gang up. Meanwhile, at Blackgate Prison, some of the prisoners, led by Arthur Brown, also known as the Clue Master, hypnotise their psychiatrist into bringing them weapons and manage to escape, heading for Gotham City. Robin is having difficulty keeping his lives separate. Ariana thinks he may be seeing someone else. Robin learns of Clue Master and his gang's escape, he investigates and runs into the spoiler, Stephanie Brown, the Clue Master's daughter, who we did have, uh, we had her debut in comics on BBFB a while ago. Uh, she's back as a spoiler and she knows her father is up to something again. Robin and Spoiler set off on the trail of the Clue Master and his gang. Uh, Robin manages to figure out a clue sent to the police and interrupts a robbery. But it goes wrong as Robin and Clue Master are trapped in the back of an armoured van and the van is being covered in concrete. Robin and Clue Master are trapped. Luckily, the other villains return to get the cash from the buried van and inadvertently rescue Robin. Spoiler knocks out Clue Master and it seems she has developed a crush on Robin after he kisses her in gratitude of being rescued. 
Isn't it past your bedtime, boy? Let's just see who's going sleepy by in the next couple of minutes, huh? So, in review, the first thing I have to say is the gang called the Speed Boys, really, uh, feels very 90s and is a Chuck Dixon trait that I'm starting to recognise in most of his books where he tries to feel tries to act trendy and down with the kids but I must admit it doesn't quite work most of the time Uh, the character of Shotgun is okay but I felt he was just a copy of Harvey Bullock and not much more than that really you can tell this is the start of a new comic book series because the threads are being set up the plot threads new characters like uh, Ives who is Robin's school friend and Ariana his girlfriend Stephanie Brown is back it's great to have her back she's a really enjoyable character to read Tim is likeable from the start and you feel you can stick with him and I can see why they decided to make a new series revolving around him. He is occasionally a bit whiter than white, you know, holier than thou. So I would like to see his darker side develop. Maybe some mistakes, maybe just something a bit more menacing. I just feel that he's a bit too perfect at times. Which I can understand, but it doesn't make for great drama. I'd like to see a few flaws in Tim Drake develop. I do like the fact he he hates lying to his dad, lying to his friends. I do think that's an interesting aspect of Tim. Tim at the moment has lost Bruce as Batman. His father has been kidnapped and he's been banished from the Batcave. But he does seem to be putting all that to one side, which feels a little unlike him. I thought he would fight to save his father. He would go with Bruce to save his father. But he's putting that all to one side and it feels doesn't feel quite right it feels like he should be doing more to help his dad rather than just leaving it to someone else the clue master was an interesting villain he always has that unfortunate comparison with the riddler but he made a good point this time of not leaving clues anymore because they got him caught and that's a very good point the baffler meanwhile his cohort was quite amusing when he turned up The art is good, great definition to the characters, good detail, but it's not too realistic. It does feel still like a comic and does have a slightly less mature look. It's colourful for younger audiences and it is aimed at the teenage market, so I can understand why that approach was taken. I do think it works quite well. It is nice to have something a bit lighter and separate us from the massive epic Nightfall saga I've been going through recently. This is really just a, a... side mission for Tim a chance to get to know him a little bit better and I I really liked it Stephanie Brown is developing a crush on Tim and no doubt that will be explored in the future so this was a a nice little story it's got a good lead character in Tim Drake and uh, he's a very interesting Robin to follow nice one off and um, a good break from Nightfall so overall 4 out of 5 Batarangs yeah time to kick some butt So next, it's time to return to the Nightfall Saga for the last time in the final chapter, which is called Night's End, and Nightfall will be concluded. This covers several issues, like the previous ones, it's a big crossover, so here is the list. Batman 509 and 510, Shadow of the Bat 29 and 30, Detective 676, 677, Legends of the Dark Knight 62 and 63, Robin 8 and 9, and Catwoman 12 and 13. So brace yourself for the dramatic conclusion to Nightfall next time. I've been Nick, and I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. Listen, dipstick, Batman's my pal. He can be a major jerk, but you gotta love him. 
and nobody tries to fillet him when I'm around. All right, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Make sure you are picking up the next set of books for the next episode. That is going to lead us into our DC Universe Spotlight. We're going to go very quickly here and uh, tell you about some books from the past four... Well, we're each going to tell you one book from the last four weeks that you should check out. So we're going to start off with Don's recommendation. Okay, so um, for this week, I will recommend something that's not strictly part of the DC New, but alternatively, it's another bat book. It's one we don't cover because it's uh, not really in our regular canon. But for this week, I will recommend Batman Brave and the Bold, issue 13, Calling All Robins. Uh, the issue, actual, the actual title is, uh, spoilers, Batman Dies at Dawn. Basically, Batman's at death's door, and he must count on the uh, assistance of all his Robins, and we mean all of them. Um, it, this is a fun issue for continuity geeks like me, because it literally has everyone who's legitimately been a Robin. Dick Grayson, Jason Todd, Tim Drake, Damian Wayne, Stephanie Brown, and... Um, uh, Carrie Kelly, and um, they 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 play off each other, they interact with each other, um, and it's a really really fun issue. It's really fun. The last page is um, a, a a dream come true almost. And for all Bat fans, I highly recommend Batman: Brave and the Bold issue thirteen. This week I'll be promoting the Flash again because the book started to pick up pace. No pun intended. Uh, where the Flash is now really starting to use his powers. To his- their the maximum ability. He's starting to learn how to think like the Flash, and it's it's really interesting. The direction of the book's really good, and it's whilst you were thrown into it as a a new reader, it's it's easy to pick up, and it's just a fun book. So I'd highly recommend it. I don't necessarily have a, a book to read. Uh, really, the great books were all in this pile that we reviewed for you. But I will 100% agree with Donovan that you need to pick up this Batman Brave and the Bold number 13 issue. And if not for the last best last panel ever where Madame Xanadu said, well, if the Robins didn't you know, do it, then we still have all the Batgirls. And you see all the Batgirls in their glory. So I definitely uh, agree with that one. Okay, so I've suggested a number of other issues that uh, all tie back to Batman somehow, Justice League International, Star Western, Suicide Squad, things like that. And, of course, this week is no different, as I suggest, My Greatest Adventure number three. Now, this is three different characters with three individual stories wrapped into one issue. It's a mini-series that's coming out currently. Um, it's on issue three, just like Penguin, Pain, and Prejudice, and... Uh, the, the Huntress, but this is actually this is actually kind of uh, a little bit behind those. Uh, but the the, the the issue actually features Garbage Man, Robot Man, and Tanga. Now you may have no idea who these characters are. These characters are, and quite honestly, I'm not real sure who they are either. I I picked this up specifically because this because I knew that Gotham City was going to be featured in it, and that somehow Batman was going to get tied into this story, and I wanted to know why. Because I never really heard of these characters other than in passing and at conventions and things like that. And I wanted to know how Batman was going to get tied to these characters. Now, the Robot Man story is very interesting. I, again, don't know very much about Robot Man, but the story itself was interesting. The Tanga story, not so much. The Garbage Man story does feature Batman. Batman basically starts off with kind of taking, trying to take out Garbage Man. Uh, because he believes the garbage man is 
not a good person and has done something to the person who actually is Garbage Man in his new form. Now, quite honestly, I don't know really know what's going on because I haven't read issues 1 and 2. Um, am I going to go back and read issues 1 and 2? I, I, I think I actually might. I, I might actually go back and read it. The Robot Man character, to me, is very interesting. I want to know more about that character. And to actually learn the history of Garbage Man could be interesting as well. The Tanga character could care less. But uh, I, I thought this was good, and I think it's worth a recommendation for this month or this this episode's DCU Spotlight. You've outshined us all. Yes, that's right. <laughs> as it should be. As it should be. All right. So that is our DCU Spotlight. Let's go over what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. Now, obviously, we had a lot of issues with uh, getting this episode out as well as actually getting, uh, actually having a lot of issues to review. Uh, next next uh, episode is not going to be as busy and also not going to be as uh, jam-packed. Um, the next episode as is scheduled for to release in two weeks from today, but the idea of it is also that uh, by splitting the second and third weeks apart, we're actually going to be able to get the get get an even number of comics for both episodes so that we're not stuck with four issues on one and then like eight issues on the other. So that's the idea. Now that's only gonna work until we have a five weeks five week month, but we'll figure that out when it happens. But as far as what we'll be covering next time on the podcast, we will for surely be doing unless some unforeseen ha- thing happens. Uh Batman number four, Batman Incorporated, Leviathan Strikes Batman Odyssey number three, Birds of Prey number four, Catwoman number four, Nightwing number four, Red Hood and the Outlaws number four. Nothing but the best. And Batman the Dark Knight number four. So, a decent amount of issues, but at the same time, it's not that, it's actually less than what we would normally have in one episode, or at least the last couple episodes, I should say. So, I'm looking forward to Batman Incorporated Leviathan Strikes because I'm interested in seeing if they actually figure out a way to actually tie what's happened in Batman Incorporated to the current twist continuity that's going on now. We'll have to see what happens. And our favorite character, Stephanie Brown, will make her reappearance next episode. So with that, that is everything for this episode. I want to remind everybody to head over to the website for all the daily news related to comic books. And of course, everything related to The Dark Knight Rises as that is gearing up and becoming the thing for news right now uh, with the viral marketing kicking off and a number of different things happening. Um, in addition to that, you can head over to the forums and become a member, chat with other bad fans about everything related to the Batman universe. Just be sure that if you join the forums, to shoot us an email and let us know that you joined the forums so we can improve your account. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news or headlines from the Batman universe. And uh, this is this episode will be posting right around Christmas, so we want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and uh, yeah, everyone uh, also have a Happy New Year, because we won't hear, you guys won't hear back from us until after the, after the New Year. So have a safe and uh, Happy New Year, and we will see you guys in two weeks. Happy Holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah. In the words of Barbara Gordon, Merry Christmas, butt wipes. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, many blessings to you and yours. This is Stella. All right, everybody. Have a great holiday. We'll see you in two weeks. Adios. Ciao. Before fastest recap time ever. Batman The Dark Knight, number three, written by David Finch, Illus. Wait, no. <laughs> the whole thing doesn't make any freaking sense. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Why do you say I'm not going to like that? You always get annoyed when we don't say enough. I, you know, I'm not going to complain when we have ten books, that's for sure. Uh, that's it. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> so that. <laughs> Seriously? Tango. That's seriously. Garbage Man? I've never heard of that character. Garbage Man. Sounds like Toxic Avenger. It pretty much is. <laughs> now you got me second guessing myself. I swear. Great Donovan. <laughs> Fine, I'll just kill him. this thing right before we. Yeah, it is Garbage Man. That's. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. So much, like, oh, man. I don't read these enough to actually realize what you know, to actually memorize these all these characters' names. Anyway, okay, just just scream me at the end. Um, not saying what happens, but we know what happens. Like that was don't say scream. Let's just say moan. Well, see it. Okay, because <laughs> cool. then we get across what's actually happening without actually saying. What about when Harry met Sally? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was I wasn't gonna say the old word, but um. Well, you know, I, the funny thing is Joe could uh, plug in that clip. And Betty's lying on the ground. I'll have what she's having. Um, anyway.